Today I'm with James Flom. James is a security expert and former business partner. We give you an insider view into the incredibly perilous lives of professional security researchers and hackers. Some details are going to go over people's head, and I think that's okay. If you continue to listen, you'll get the broader concepts. James has historically stayed behind the scenes and isn't much of a talker, but I think you'll see why we get along so well. We dig into the history of Hackers.org, Sec Theory, and the incredible amount of attacks we sustained. We dig into some of our stories, how hackers tried to hack into Hackers.org, big surprise, how our ISPs got involved, and many other crazy stories. We discussed FOIA requests, carnivore boxes, and being infiltrated by spies. We also talk about what it took for me to become a good person. With that, please meet James Flom. Hello and welcome to the Yarsnake Show. Today I have with me a very good friend of mine, James Flom. How are you, sir? Good. Yeah, you? Good to see you. Same. Thanks for coming all the way down. <laughs> it was a long 15-minute drive. <laughs> so you and I have known each other for more than two decades, I think. Something like that. We met in April of um, 2001. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, more than 20 years. Yeah. Um, and you and I have been friends. We've been business partners. Um, we've done a lot of really kind of cool experiments in science and technology and, and a hacking. Of, a lot of hacking. A lot of weird stuff. A lot of, a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, out of all of my friends uh, that I have ever had in my life, like, I think you're the third longest friend I've, you know, stayed in touch with all these years, <clears throat> which is really saying something because... Uh, uh, that's, that's a long time to stay in touch with somebody and, uh, be as friendly as we have been all this time. So, okay. um, <clears throat> for those who have no idea who you are, which I suspect is virtually every single person listening, um, this is a, this is an interesting one because you and I have worked together and on almost the exact same things at the same time, but yeah. you from a very different perspective than mine, yes. which is kind of cool. Um, my expertise has primarily been on the web application and browser side, and yours is? Network security, host security, random other security, <laughs> breaking into buildings. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, I forgot all about that. You have definitely, definitely have done several that. several times. Yeah, yeah. There's some good stories around that, too. Um, but I remember long ago when we were very first kind of talking uh, back when we still had an office and we we're working out of that office together. We used to sit down and have these very intense, long conversations, like super intense, like multi-hour long conversations. And I remember at least two or three times you'd say something like, ah, we should have recorded that. Like that, that would have been really interesting. I think a lot of people would have gotten a lot of value out of hearing all of that. Yep. And I totally agree. And I think you know, uh, Raymond Kaminsky actually, I think, encouraged me to actually go through with it. And he finally had a podcast studio. He's like, come on down. You should, you should, you know, do some stuff in my studio. But I think it was you who was the seed in my brain originally, um, made me think, mm -hmm. yeah, that it is kind of annoying that this date, this information's lost, you know, we're never going to get back. We can't recreate that conversation. It's, it's yeah. literally impossible. Uh, it, you have the same feeling. Yeah. I think it's living in that experience at that time that trying to recreate that knowledge is very difficult when you're like, I think a lot of the times it was like we we're dealing with a hack or something. Mm -hmm. And so the insights that we came up with during it, they were applicable then they're probably applicable to a lot of other things, but mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's Well, you have an interesting designation in my brain as being the most dangerous person I know. Thank you. you. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think is really saying something. Um, I kind of like to think of you as like a walking nuclear bomb. Like you are capable of a lot of really interesting things online that most people just can't even really comprehend. Like how would you possibly do these things? It's it's almost magic. I mean, I realize it is not anywhere near magic yeah. unless you're talking about the literal sense of a magician where they have just a bunch of tricks up their sleeve. Right. So that makes you an interesting character for all kinds of reasons. I think uh, one of the reasons uh, you never got a whole lot of limelight is you chose to be fairly behind the scenes. Um, 100%. You actually even chose a handle, ID, uh, and ID turns out to be one of the most impossible things on the internet to search for. Yes. And I think you took quite a bit of glee in that <laughs> sort, of, <laughs> sort of disappearing from the internet. So let's talk about the beginning. So what got you into hacking? What made you decide that this was something that you wanted to entertain or do or whatever? It's more of something that I just started doing because I was trying to get, um, I'm going to date myself here. Mm-hmm. But Prodigy, which was owned by Sears, of all places. Was it really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, you know, we got the free trials and all that. I wanted to figure out a way to get from their service onto the internet. So I had to basically break through their software to figure out how to get to news groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's probably how I started. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, out of necessity. You were, uh, you needed to do something, and you decided yeah. you were going to go was, and accomplish it. I was nine. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you remember? I remember you telling me this one time about a story about your dad overseas and uh, working on some some system, uh, and somebody came up and they were like shutting down the facility or something, and and uh, he basically was like. Like, thank you so much for, like, helping me out. Like, can you tell the story? Yeah, so him and my uncle were both over in Vietnam. Uh, I was in Vietnam, too, during the war as a baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> they thanked the guards, and the guards like, yeah, my job's to kill you if we're ever breached to save the data because mm-hmm. they didn't want them to be tortured into giving it up which is fairly insane. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of the ecosystem that you grew up in. That, that was your family. That was sort of your life. Like, like you, you may not have been aware of it, obviously, at the time as a baby, but yeah. <clears throat> as you grew up, you were around very technical people and who had access to computers and yeah. access to the internet as early as the internet really existed for consumers. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had... I'd, I did not have that exact um, life story, but it's not dissimilar. You know, a lot of very technical people around me. And, you know, I also was trying to get online and figure out how to do interesting things. And so I think that's a a common story from back in those days. You know, just what can you get away with? Right. I mean, it was before hacking. And I kind of hate to use the word anymore. Um, But before computer security was about what it is today mm-hmm. it was mostly people exploring finding things yes i was bypassing controls to get two things but mm-hmm. yeah yeah v- very different than people think of 
it today. How, how so? Well, ex- nobody was monetizing. I mean, you could go all the way back to like the first big hack you heard of that someone was trying to monetize is probably Mitnick. Um, but there was a long time before that, that it was just simply, I mean, the first server I ever broke into besides Prodigy, maybe AOL was, um, a South African university that was running an early version of Linux. And it was just about exploring. I didn't want to hurt anybody or do anything. There was no monetary like value to it. It was just, you know, you're a kid and you need to explore. Yeah. I, I also found myself exploring a lot in the early days. I think for me, it was largely about the visual aspect of it. I really was curious, like how did these pixels end up on my screen and why, why is this server able to change my computer to do something different than it was doing a minute ago? Like that, that all seemed very foreign and interesting and strange. And, and then for me, the marriage of that plus the psychological aspects that I saw, you know, why, why does this color elicit a certain behavior or why, why are links shaped the way they're linked, uh, they're shaped the way they're shaped or why did they choose this language to make me want to go from one page to another like that? that really opened my mind up to a realm of possibilities. Those two things opened me up completely. Like, Oh, I bet I could do all kinds of things. Right. Like this is, this is wide open. Like this is the wild west. Right. I think there's a, one of the differences between you and I, I'm a little bit older than you. Yeah. Um, I learned to program before the internet was really a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 79, we had our first computer, which is way before a, most, you know, before it was a consumer type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we probably viewed things very differently just from how we ended up growing up. Sure. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Also, I, I took a lot of classes, engineering classes, and um, <clears throat> there was always something about the bits and bytes of it that seemed fairly abstract and strange and distant to me. Whereas the visual components, the stuff I could actually see and interact with, felt very near and uh, approachable. And so when I looked at your world, um, the, the networking world, the host world, I understood pieces of it. I, I mean, I, I understood it well enough to speak intelligently to it to other people, but I sure didn't understand really how it worked, the underpinnings of it. I, I didn't, I mean, I couldn't write TCP IP. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get on a switch and configure it, nothing like that. Um, right. But uh, that's kind of your whole world. That's where you spent. That's your bread and butter. That's that's where you. Yeah. That's where you cut your teeth, and still do yes. to this day. Yeah, some. Yeah, to some extent. So how you and I first met? We first met at uh, Digital Insights. Or sorry, uh, Digital, Digital Island, Island rather. <laughs> Digital Insight. <laughs> totally different company. Um, and um, we were involved in. Uh, I wasn't even in security at this point or like I was just getting into security like a day later kind of thing. Yeah. Um, oh. And uh, up, to, up until that point, I had been a programmer. And you, um, I recall you and I were very early on involved in one of the largest hacks in the history of the internet at the time, maybe even the biggest, would you? It was easily the biggest as far as what it was, which was credit card stealing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it was actually Jono that first, uh, John Orbiton, mm -hmm. unfortunately, gone Passed from away. us. But yep. yeah, um, he was the first one to notice it. And he came over. It wasn't, he didn't know it was a hack. He just noticed that something was wrong on a server, mm -hmm. which turned out to be a laptop. But <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it was it's sitting yeah. in some little closet somewhere down in L.A. <laughs> it was in Delray. Um, uh -huh. It was yeah, it was one of the first times I worked with the FBI. We went down there. Um, he noticed it one night. We had just been we just hired that security. Um, I don't know executive team. They were all like ex-FBI people. <clears throat> and yeah, we went down there. Jono and I actually drove all the way down to uh, Marina Del Rey. We get to this really fancy looking office building and we go up to the top of it and there's a bunch of like beige boxes and laptops and that's what they call the data center. It was all just, I mean, literally stacked on top of each other. Like old Gateway 2000 machines kind of thing. <laughs> 100%. It was like some of the first laptops, and then they'd have a laptop with a beige box sitting on top of it. Mm -hmm. And it was all, it was the jankiest mm -hmm. whatever. But, uh, yeah, that was an interesting hack because I remember that night. I probably shouldn't because we drank a lot of scotch. Mm -hmm. And beer. Mm -hmm. And luckily, Jono's significant other at the time drove us all home. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, that was, that was fun. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the reason why that was such a, uh, in my mind, such a important night, that night in particular was such an important night is uh, it led to all kinds of crazy things happening. Like you got sort of summarily dismissed at one point. Um, like the whole team was sort of like thrown up in the air and like police were involved. It was this massive thing. It was this yeah. multi-month long, you know, crazy thing that ended up happening. And they fired you and hired you back in the exact same day. <laughs> like All kinds of stuff. Uh, yeah. So it was, a, it was a fantastic time in a lot of ways, the old, the old West. And this is actually one of the reasons why uh, when there's a breach event, Oftentimes I'm telling people like based on this conversation we had all these years ago, like why are you trying to chase the bad guys down? Like, why are you doing this? There's, there's yeah. an enforcement arm of our government that is designed specifically for this task. Like, why are you spending the time and effort to do this? Uh, a lot of people just really get caught up in it and they did too. And I don't think they liked that you were telling them, Hey, like this is a, a humongous waste of our time and resources trying to find right. these people. They, I figured it out. They spent like one and a half million dollars trying to find the bad guy. Mm -hmm. I'm like, who cares who the bad guy is? Fix the problem and move on. Yeah. Exactly. Because there's a million bad guys. So, but, the, but you're right. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Like all, all the time. Yeah, exactly. And so shortly thereafter, uh, you and I started hackers.org, H-A.C-K-E-R-S.org. Yep. Um, more or less out of your living room. Um, I remember we, we were trying to get it working on Drupal at first at first, and switched to WordPress eventually. And well, I mean, it's kind of hilarious because I found an old firewall online. Had Celeron processors from the mid-90s. Um, it was rack mount. I have a great picture of it. 
uh, I'll send it to you. Sure. Um, but that's exactly where it started. So we hosted hackers.org off of a, a firewall. <laughs> <laughs> Which pretty much says everything you need to know about that infrastructure. <laughs> yep. And then it out was, of my closet. And out of your closet. And then we upgraded to a friend of ours, um, uh, his garage. Mauricio. Yeah, we yep. put it in his garage, literally, which is a terrible place to put any server equipment at, like ever, because yep. the heat issues and you know. And it was on a shelf above his car. <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. <laughs> Not exactly the uh, the best uh, we're capable of, uh, but it's but in if, a weird way. What kind of was? <laughs> it, it, it was, and if you look at like the the old slackers. Yeah. Um, the graphic that we had at the top of that. Yep. That was from his garage. So slackers.org, for those who have no idea, was the forum we built on top of the blog. So yeah. instead of it being ha.ckrs.org, it's sla.ckrs.org. And uh, it was, that ended up being, I mean, it was the place to go for web application security experts. If you look at the people that you know today that are web apps experts, they almost all had handles on slackers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say so. We we actually created an industry almost overnight using that. I mean, I'm not totally giving myself credit. Obviously, there's a lot of other people involved, but uh, that that really was a nice place for them to all congregate and learn and practice. <clears throat> yeah. I remember one of the things we did on there is uh, we had a um, full disclosure um, thing, you know, this little sub forum within the forum. Yeah. Uh, where people just posted, hey, I just hacked this thing, and here's how, and here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. And it was it was more of a race to see how fast we could go through the list of the entire internet and find at least one bug on effectively every, you know, Alexa 1000 or million or whatever websites, uh, however far you wanted to go down the list. Yes. And it's effectively every single one of them. It wasn't like yeah. 50% or 10% or whatever. It was 100%. Yep. Uh, every single one of them we found a vulnerability on. And I think that really changed people's mind about what web application security was capable of and how dangerous we actually were. And It did. And I think that, um, and I could be wrong, but I think things like Burp Suite mm-hmm. pretty much had their foundation there. It's or, or, the ideas or certainly out of were, there yeah, yeah, certainly increased, were built out of it. Yeah, I would say that's probably true. Burp Suite is a, uh, a, a tool that hackers use the audience may have no idea what we're talking about here. Uh, it's a tool that hackers use to change their traffic and modify it before it hits the website. So, yeah. you know, change it from I'm buying this thing for a thousand dollars to I'm buying it for no dollars or whatever, <clears throat> or other things. I mean, other hilarious stuff happened at slackers. Yeah. Many, especially the grandma thing. Yeah. <laughs> you go ahead. Go ahead. It's up to you. you no, it, well, it was all, it wasn't us. It was the users of the site that decided, well, First of all, you wrote something in the blog, mm-hmm. and it referenced grandma porn. Grandma prawn, in particular. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and the users of the site decided to, this is also the early days of SEO, mm-hmm. they decided to promote it until we were the number one site on the internet for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a, it was a nice crossover. In fact, it's funny you mentioned this, uh, a podcast just launched today with myself and Jono uh, Alderson, uh, where I'm talking about the, 
the overlap between marketing and SEO. And it's incredibly deep. Like they're, they're very inter, intertwined in all kinds of interesting ways. And that's just another example. We have a whole bunch of hackers who just decided to get me to rank for this. And then there's this whole, there's all these poor jerks trying to find these things and landing on this hacker website, totally confused <laughs> how they ended up there. <laughs> and because we recorded everything in our logs, like every search query that came through, um, going through a lot of that, it was, I mean, degenerate as can be, but mm -hmm. yeah. it also created an entire industry because right after that happened, everybody was looking at the SEO rankings of it and they built their own, they built sites around it. Mm -hmm. So you created a industry of, well, you know, wrinkly and it, Nate, bad stuff yeah <laughs> Nate, well that's true i can unfortunately <laughs> that is actually true so then we uh then we started sec theory yes um we go ahead and you explain it I would, since you are now the ceo i think it's it's only fair i still don't remember who came up with the name by the way um but you were down in la and i was still in san francisco um, I was working as consultant, with some rather big companies, but hated it. I think you didn't enjoy your job at the time either. No, I did not. And one of your friends, well, our very first job was someone out of Austin. Um, but one of your friends actually got it to go, mm -hmm. um, the contract that they signed, which I'll leave that out of the, all of this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was like, what, 20 grand or something? Yeah, something. And it, it started the company. Um, and after a couple months, I was able to quit my job. You'd met someone down in Austin that basically offered us free um, office space. I was on the advisory board of Adometry, which was Click Forensics at the time. Yep. So they gave, gave us free office space, which... I think they probably strongly regretted after hundred uh, percent after six months or so because <laughs> we were hosting well several other websites besides just Sec Theory out of there. Yeah. Hackers.org was hosted out of there, yeah, and they got DOSed and a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. But we were definitely costing them money. Yeah, but you know we also helped out too. So who knows? Maybe we even got them acquired eventually by some of the tips and tricks we gave them. So. Yeah, it's entirely possible. But that that those three things, like how we met um, the hacker website and sec theory pretty much sums up like how and we're, we're going to dig into this. So don't worry. But that pretty much sums up how we met one another, how we worked with one another and sort of the 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 life cycle. But yep. each one of those things, I think, were very instructive to how we kind of ended up becoming friends and and uh, working together and all kinds of stuff. It was. So let's go back in time a little bit. So when Hackers.org was very first coming online, like, you know, it, it, I don't even think it was a blog yet. I think it was literally just a website, a static website. Completely. Uh, it had no, no content on it at all that was dynamic. Uh, but I had created something called the Cross-Site Scripting Cheat Sheet, a very early incarnation of it. Um, yep. And what that was was a way for hackers to go and they can cut and paste a bad thing, a payload and inject it in websites. And if it worked, it would create a little pop-up that says it works and that's right. it. And <clears throat> I was working at eBay at that time. And my boss, uh, 
I think he kind of looked the other way a lot on whatever I was doing. He's just like, look, Robert's trying to protect us. Whatever he's doing, he's doing for, for the benefit of the company, which was true. Yep. It took a while for him to get to that conclusion, but effectively he realized that I was on his team. But um, what was cool about uh, hackers.org and that particular cross-site scripting cheat sheet in particular is that bad guys all over the world were utilizing it. It wasn't, wasn't just good guys. It was bad guys. It was everybody. Everybody yep. was using this thing. Even back then when it was still just a static website. Yep. And um, at eBay, we would actually see people copy paste the exploit payloads from hackers.org, try it on eBay, and then fail for whatever reason, and then go to the next one, copy paste it, fail for whatever reason, and just keep iterating. And I could watch them try every single thing from from the from the from the payload list. And then one day I got a <clears throat> an email from from a uh, a vendor, and I had already I'd been watching my logs and I saw someone had actually been successful and I'm like okay so I grabbed it and put it on the cross site scripting cheat sheet. There's just another example, another thing you can do. We're gonna block it. And so they sent me an email saying, hey, our uh, snake, we uh, we have this new exploit. You should this new way of injecting things. You should see. I'm like, oh yeah, it's already on the cheat sheet. Like exactly their payload. And that's when I think they realized that. They probably shouldn't be using it because I'm kind of watching them and that may be who I am because right. really no one knew who I was back then. And then <clears throat> that was also the time when I realized I probably shouldn't be utilizing it that way because now I'm I'm too intertwined between my company and the hacker's website and these contractors who are trying to protect eBay from the outside. And right. But my boss at the time called asshole.com. Like anybody who goes there must be an asshole. And, uh, and I think that was... Uh, I think that was the beginning. That was really the true beginning of hackers.org. When when I really saw that what we were doing was having actual massive impact to these companies because I could see it firsthand. I could see my logs. I could see things happening. Yeah. What was your sort of feeling about hackers.org? Like what what is the aesthetic you got out of it? When did you know it was a thing? It's actually a fairly hard question. Um because at first I was just hosting it for you just because we were friends. Yeah. Um, once I saw the amount of traffic we were having and the discussions on slackers and the references, because there were a lot of references out there to hackers.org, um, then I knew it. And then it was really when we started getting attacked. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people don't know that it, we were on WordPress 1.3. I thought that was 2.2 by two by two eventually. Nope. Well, I think Never we went past 1.3. Oh, I thought we made it to 2.2. <laughs> yeah, but either way, it doesn't matter because it was horribly vulnerable. Insanely. You were patching insanely it vulnerable. all the time. Yeah. But yeah, I, w I was doing a massive amount of work and you were too. Uh, it's not. Well, I finally made. got fed up with it and we built the armored stack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we'll get to in a minute. Let, let's, uh, let's, let's not go all the way down that path yet. Uh, but I think you're right. I think the point at which it really took off was when people started really attacking it. And the reason they were attacking it is they thought they could get money out of us or they thought they could break in and find out the secrets or whatever and right. uh, or bragging rights. There's a there was so many attacks happening. We were getting thousands and thousands a day. Like I think we were probably more attacked per capita than even the biggest companies on earth. Yes. Easily. Yeah. I mean I had a call from the CEO of um our my DSL provider at the time saying, I love what you guys are doing, but they keep dosing our network because of you guys. And he's like, you need to make that stop. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a polite way of saying, get the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. 
it was yeah. Sonic Net. Mm-hmm. At, at I the mean, they were, they were very polite and nice to us. They, um, no, they were super nice. And yeah. they actually let us keep going for almost another year after that. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> how often do you get called by the CEO of uh, ISP that says, love you guys, but get out? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they were nice. They were actually nice. They're pleasant. Super. They try to work with us. They try to stop the issues on their side. And it just, it's how are you going to stop every hacker on earth when they all very determined to get into this website for bragging yeah. rights or whatever reason they were trying to get in. Right. It was right. very, it was very, it was interesting. It was, it was fun to watch. The logs were crazy. Um, ended up eventually writing a book from those logs called detecting malice, which was, you know, yep. to this day, I think probably the best, uh, or maybe even the only real book on internet fraud in that genre. Um, it's free now. You can just download it. Um, right. so, um, but we were hacking everything, uh, really, truly everything. And even sometimes by accident, or I would say even oftentimes by accident, like, uh, so many times, yeah, <laughs> so many times by accident. Um, one that I thought was really hilarious, um, out of many, many, many examples was Amazon, uh, because we had written a book on cross-site scripting and Amazon had indexed that book, but it indexed it in, in raw text. And so... The problem is when you put raw text up and it's got HTML in it, it'll render the HTML. When it rendered the HTML, it actually allowed me to run JavaScript in the context. So I basically could take over Amazon, like all of Amazon, if I felt like it kind of thing. So that's not good. Uh, (laughs) um, But there's all kinds of examples of that. Do you happen to remember any others that you think were interesting? I mean, the stupidest one was hacking China Mm -hmm. on accident. Mm -hmm. We had a customer... Um, <clears throat> they did mainframe security, tried to acquire us. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, this is the IP address of our, our office in China. I'm like, are you sure? And this is kind of before we had figured out, we really need to verify things. <laughs> 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 and so I started hacking a, a router. I mean, they, they kind of, I don't, they kind of lied to us also. They, they sort of made it seem like they owned this and this, but they didn't really own that second thing. And so by virtue of them not owning it, us going one more upstream to hack the thing that's right above them is hacking something enormous. Like it was the trans Pacific link to China. Right. Yeah. 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 Just hacking. All China. <laughs> <laughs> and we, so we, we had complete access to the router mm-hmm. with pretty much every subnet China had on it. So there's that. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) by accident. Yeah. But that was, that that was actually by accident, strangely. Um, I mean, that sounds incredible. Like how the hell did you guys accidentally hack China? Well, you know, sometimes you're, you're given incorrect information and you just start doing the normal hacking things you normally do. And well, yeah, that's that's why I do, I would say that, you know, not that one would normally do. Well, yeah. That's why I verify a lot of things these days. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> like Cisco um, and some of these other firewall companies, like they know you by name. When they're when they want something done, when they want to check out on check their, you know, routers or switches or firewalls or whatever, they send it to you. And I don't mean like your company. I mean literally you when they're trying to find these things to see if they're actually vulnerable or not. Yep. And that's pretty telling because if you look at these machines overseas and now they're using other operating systems like Huawei or whatever. Uh, but 
for a long time, they were all, you know, top layer or, you know, Juniper or Cisco or just a handful of these companies. I mean, they're still all derivatives of that. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, they're using Linux for a lot of it, but so is Cisco. Mm-hmm. So there's not that big of a difference. So what do you think makes someone a good hacker versus kind of an average hacker or a bad hacker? It's probably mostly perspective. There's Well, there's two things. One, to be a good hacker, I think you need to learn the, uh, the system side of things. Like you, if you're going to hack the web, you should probably learn JavaScript first. And HTML. And HTML. And <laughs> CSS. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things is I don't think you understood exactly how a web server worked when we first started this. You were hacking web pages, but you didn't understand how, say, Apache or Nginx worked at the time. I would say that's true and false. I mean, I certainly knew how to configure them, but sure. I didn't know what was going on under the hood of why those configuration things did whatever they were doing. Right. And you didn't really have a great understanding of IP at the time. Definitely not. And so learning that made you a better hacker. Much better. Yeah. And, and DNS in particular helped a lot. Yeah. Yep. So it, it, it's learning not just breaking into things. It's learning why things are the way they are. And then you can break into them better. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the things that's missing from a lot of average hackers. I remember when I was very first getting started, like day one hacking kind of thing. And it was the, someone was showing me how to debug something over a, a web server. And they're like, oh, you just tone it to this port and you type get slash and hit enter. I'm like, you do what? What, why is that? What happened? Why, what is going on? What is all this stuff that's happening here? And, and they tr- tried to explain it to me. And I'm like, I just don't understand what's going on. You just, you somehow connected your like terminal to a server. Like how, how is this occurring? And it's, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it, but as soon as I did it myself and I like actually saw what was going on and I could, you know, spend the time to actually craft different payloads and get different outputs. I'm like, Whoa, I cannot believe I am emulating a browser. Like my hands are a browser right now. Um, like I don't need this crazy complicated piece of software between me and any web server. And I would just type it in and now I'm communicating directly. And once I figured that out and I was able to bypass the, the super complex nature of browsers and go straight to web servers, which, you know, I still hadn't figured out web servers to your point, but web applications, on the other hand, I was all over like yeah, yeah. that, that I was destroying right and left. Um, that was when I, I think my eyes were fully open to the complexity, but also how totally simple certain parts of the web actually are. Completely. And I would say even take it down further, like yeah, go ahead. Um, just understanding how, at the electronic level how things work is one of the things that's made me a way better hacker, and that goes back to like my dad owned a computer repair shop, mm-hmm. and so I literally was you know he he had tasked me with repairing just some random computer or something and then we got a switch and some other stuff and all of a sudden i had to go like okay so you're changing voltage on this line to make a bit that makes that's interpreted somewhere i think that's one of the like once i understood that and i was lucky that it happened at a very young age but uh yeah it's 
it's something that most people are completely clueless. We were talking the other day, um, walking my dog mm-hmm. beside call you. <laughs> and I was talking about my, <clears throat> my brother and his understanding. And like, he's like working on AI models, but he doesn't understand any of the implications or why or how any of it works behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's just super common now. Incredibly. I have this beef with uh, AI ML in particular, where I think there's something that's really desperately lacking from those models, which is forensic logging of what's going on. So like this thing, I put this input, I got this output. Why? Like what, what happened? And that why everyone's super comfortable with They're like, yeah, it's, it's a black box. I'm like, what? How is anyone okay with that? How is anyone anywhere is like, that's, that's cool that it just randomly curated this output. No, no, no. You got to know why that's happening. And so for me, to me, it sounds like an insane amount of debugging statements. Just show me how this thing decided to do this thing. And if I, if I can't follow the logic by, with my mind, there, that's a massive problem. That means you're probably doing something you don't think you're, you probably shouldn't be doing. You're 100% doing something you shouldn't be doing. Right. I, yeah, no, I, in the last time I talked to my brother, I was like, you realize someone's going to like make an automated, you know, so your net pet or whatever as also dated, but yeah, <laughs> very much so <laughs> just automatically brushes its own teeth or whatever, you know, it does to take care of itself. And then it's going to s- decide because you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes mm-hmm. that it's going to, you know, brush everybody's teeth, take over the world. And that's how the world's going to end is with AI deciding it needs to brushing your teeth, your teeth to your <laughs> to death. death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think it's going to go that way, <laughs> but, uh, but I totally agree with the point. And I think that there's tons of examples throughout all over the, all over the internet. Like I look at modern programming languages, old programming language, like they're pretty well documented they're pretty like everything's pretty uniform everyone everyone wanted to look a very specific way there weren't a lot of like strange hacks or builds on things that built on top of those things they're all very like this is what it is when you get to modern languages they are a mess i mean you you have like 14 different ways to install things you have unbelievably uncontiguous like naming conventions and weird ways to pull things in. There's like 20 different ways to do any function you want and they all do slightly different things and they're not backwards compatible and on and on and on and on. Um, I literally just uh, a buddy of mine like two or three days ago installed an update to his Mac and he's like, why isn't this software working anymore? I'm like, I don't know. Did you update your computer? He's like, oh, actually I did. I'm like, that's why. <laughs> and now yeah. it's a three hour process just to figure out that some library is deprecated in the current version of whatever he just updated to. Yeah. This is a super, super common thing with modern programming languages. I think part of the problem is modern programmers, they're, they just don't know that it could be better. They don't remember a time when things weren't like that. 100%. And also to your point of it bringing in things, like how many people use Node.js? Five. Yeah. A million. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Five billion. <laughs> but it, 
everything's being sucked in from all these libraries that are on the internet. Yeah. And now you've got a security problem where if any one of them is compromised in any way. And, and people intentionally compromise them. Intentionally or unintentionally. I mean, that doesn't yeah. matter, right? Yeah. But you're, you're not in control of what's going on. And, uh, yeah, the complexity issue. Um, that is another, so old timey websites, they're pretty static. They didn't really do much. There was a form. Usually the form had, you know, a couple error functions on it that said, Hey, you didn't in- input this correctly. And then it inserted into a database and that was it. That was, yeah. there was nothing more complicated than that. As soon as uh, web 2.0 and XML HTTP request and all these modern web frameworks started being built, that's when there is no one person on earth who's going to be good at all of those things at the same time. You yeah. could be good at one of those things, I believe it, maybe even four or five of those things, but the vast array of things you had to know just to run a simple web application, just something that just takes some input from a user is almost insurmountable. And then if you add in browsers and how they work or network on you go the other direction, hosts and the underlying operating system and web server, there's just no chance. That complexity is way too high. And then even if I believe for a second you could understand all that stuff, you're probably using third-party APIs and you don't understand those because you don't have access to them. Right. <clears throat> you don't understand what's going on behind Stripe's API when you're trying to you know, swipe your credit card. You have no idea what's happening back there. But I think that part's okay. Do you? I do not think that's okay at all. I mean, In fact, in fact I think it's terrifying. So using something like Stripe's API, yes, you don't know. But that can be legally limited liability-wise. Yes. So do you care? Mm, Yeah, definitely. Because there's a difference between liability and things just not working the way you think they are for an undetermined amount of time that you can't control. Or even if you could control, you won't know that they're broken because things are so obscured in such a weird way. Like I've run into systems before where you're you're going along just fine everything's good and you're like why are we losing so-? I'm like like uh, our search engine traffic must be down or something if something's something's weird like we're losing more and more money we're, like normally we'd be up this time of year and, and it turns out that there's just this thing that's been broken for like six months and no one even noticed are you going to sure. go try to sue stripe because they changed some minor thing which they by the way told you about and someone didn't read the specs on because it's too complicated right I just don't think so. I don't think you're going to sue them. I don't think the liability is really gone. And especially when you're talking about voting systems, like you looked at uh, Ukrainian voting uh, system, I think it was that they had, uh, they published that thing's a mess, an absolute mess. Uh, Obama's website, uh, the healthcare.org site is a mess. His API is all over the place. No error conditions, no checking to make sure this thing's going to go up or go down. What happens if it's not online? What happens? There's no like, and then it's just assuming everything's going to work at all times. So I I don't think you can chalk it up just to liability anymore. Or I mean, not safely. Not safely. Yeah. I don't know. Well, okay. So why do you think hackers.org was so secure? How do you think we survived... I mean, I, I remember at least a dozen times, at least, probably way more than that, saying out loud, uh, someday we'll get hacked. And we never got hacked. So I was wrong. Uh, I know your stuff doesn't get hacked. I know you're very proud of that. Um, but why? I mean, mostly it started out because I was annoyed that you were 
giving me updates all the time and saying this is broken or this doesn't work. And finally, I was like, if I can compartmentalize like every little bit of what we do, then that separation can keep us safe, which is something that's missing even more today than it was back then, which, I mean, we started off with flat networks and we started off with people not um, understanding basic network security or host security. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then they got it and now they've lost it all again. It's weird. So it was... It was just focusing, and I think one of the advantages I had, I came from Hewlett-Packard. So I had used HPUX, and they had a very well-run... Which is an operating system, for those who don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's one of the original Unixes. But they had been around since whatever HP started as, 40s or something. And so... By the time I got there in the 90s, they had already built up this infrastructure and had all this stuff in mind. Like everything was set, separated, thought out. And so when we took that into consideration, or when I had that in my brain, I was like, what can we do with, you know, we're not running HP servers or anything crazy like that. What can I do with what we have? I'm also the reason that we used FreeBSD mm -hmm. because BSD was more like HP UX than Linux was. Um, and OpenBSD are on firewall. But yeah, it was just paying attention to just keeping everything separate. Um, obviously logging, stuff like that, that people just ignore nowadays. So I think the way I like to phrase it is I, nothing trusted anything else in that system at all. There was not a single thing that trusted any other compartment of, of this whole system, which is annoying and cumbersome and yes, yes, yes. But with a site that's as attacked as that site was running, as you said, an incredibly ancient version of WordPress, um, you had to, you had to, I mean, there was no yeah. way to patch WordPress. In fact, WordPress core was having a new vulnerability about every month or so <clears throat> at that point. Now it's much more stable. Right. But at the time you really should not be running WordPress at all on a hacking website. You're just going to get hacked. Yeah. Um, and so every single component didn't trust, like my browser didn't trust me. Um, the website didn't trust my browser. The, the operating system didn't trust, or sorry, the web server didn't trust the application, the the host didn't trust the web server, the database didn't trust any of anyone. At <laughs> the, all. The network is completely isolated and blocked off and yep. <clears throat> and on and on and on. Actually, there was many more layers than I'm describing even. Yep. And so what ended up happening is even when a really very good exploit would come in that was guaranteed to win on any other site like ours um, with a different infrastructure, it definitely would have worked. And ours it just kind of bounced off like nothing, nothing even yeah. really got particularly close. I remember some hackers try to come after us. Um, some of the slackers, uh, some of our, some of our friends. Yeah. Yes. Uh, try to come after us and, uh, they, they burnt two new exploits trying to hack me effectively to get into the system and they didn't work. They bounced off because of how yeah. this whole system was set up. 
I remember being three. Oh, sure. Actually, I think you're right. I think it was three. Um, but yeah. <clears throat> three. But that 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 was by design, right? We, yeah. We we I tried to be thoughtful about building something, and uh, but I was just taking all the experience I had from you know having worked years in the industry and applying it to some crappy firewall we turned it into hackers.org. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was definitely not the right kind of architecture for all kinds of reasons, but it was very robust. It worked. It did. <clears throat> I remember one of the other problems that we had um, was an enormous amount of traffic um, for something as small as this tiny little blog. We were getting absolutely destroyed by traffic. An enormous, enormous amount of people were visiting this website. So we were on slash dot a few times. Mm-hmm. And back then for people that don't know, it was one of the biggest technology websites. Um, and there was actually a term for it slash dotted where your site went down because you got so much traffic from them. And somehow we were able to keep ours up on a freaking, I don't know, what is it? $40 a month DSL. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very optimized. It was very, very optimized. Yes. And I think there was a lot of questions. Um, Matt Mullingweg, uh, who's the inventor of WordPress, once touted that one of the biggest hacking websites on earth uses WordPress. And I was very quick to say, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not, we are running an ancient version that I have long ago forked uh, on top of this very, very, very complicated architecture. It's, it's sort of silly to call it WordPress at this point kind of thing. Right. Um, But there was a good reason to use WordPress. Like once upon a time we were thinking about Drupal, we were thinking about, you know, building our own. There was, there was a my PHP or something. I forget some other CMS that we looked at. We landed on WordPress purely because it was just simple. It was a very lightweight by comparison. Uh, when I was auditing the code on the others, I found all kinds of problems, which is fairly, you know, to be expected. There are enormous code bases with a lot going on. And you later found tons of issues with WordPress. Yeah, I did. I, I, <laughs> As well. I, I sure did. Um, <clears throat> but like simple things like why, why is the admin page always slash admin? Why shouldn't we name it Quidgyboo or, you know, name it Bob or something, put it somewhere in some other directory. So yep. all of a sudden a lot of these attacks that require the admin page to be here just don't work. There's all kinds of things like that that just seemed very silly to me that these things were built so uncustomizable, so unflexible. Yeah. And so I just ended up having to fork it just to get, get it there. I mean, that's an interesting point too. <clears throat> Obfuscation is not security. But it can be convenient in just yeah not having to deal with a lot of other th- stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the fact that people say obfuscation is not security. Yeah, I've never liked that either. It's because, yeah, if, if a million attacks at your website don't ever go through because they're automated mm-hmm. and they can't find whatever, a path or whatever, right? You're, yeah. It's not security, but it's. I mean, it's not. It's making it more robust. Yeah, I mean, but it's like I've never liked that theory that obfuscation isn't security. I mean, it is a kind of security, and it totally works. Like I'm thinking of a number right now. What's the number? Hmm. Obviously, you don't know the number. You could brute force it and try to get it out of me, but it's obfuscated. It's it's hidden by virtue of the fact that you just don't know it. Sure. Um, or look at any Google Docs. Or look at any password. Or 
I mean, literally the links on Google Docs are predicated on... Or Dropbox or a million of these platforms. Yeah, they're just... It's complicated URL you, structure. Yeah, you can't. You can't guess it. You're never going to guess it. You're not going to brute force it any time in your lifetime because it's complicated. It's a very long, weird set of numbers. You're not going to yeah. guess it. Right. So, yeah, I, I always thought that was extremely silly and, and, and bad of our industry to not grok how useful obfuscation can be in very targeted situations. Um, I've found it to be an incredibly valuable tool in all kinds of situations in security, <clears throat> both on the yep. defense and offensive side. So we also suffered some fairly large denial of service attacks, uh, like real ones, not just because we got hit by traffic. Yeah. Um, one of them I remember was by some kid somewhere that you ended up finding. Oh yeah. So that was a kid in Italy that was, um, dosing us. And luckily I had, once again, dating myself, we had the DSL connection, but I also had a dial up connection with this, with SonicNet at the same time. And, uh, <clears throat> I ended up using that, the, uh, the dial up connection, go 56 K modems, mm -hmm. um, to, to actually, I'm sure there's statute limitations are running out for this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, they were, they're, they're run out. <laughs> Anyways, I hacked his computer and it turned out it was his mom's computer and I got her email address and I emailed her using, I don't know, it was a Google translate cause I don't know Italian, mm -hmm. but whatever. And, um, sh I shut the computer down. But emailed her, and she replied back to me, I'll punish my boy. Mm -hmm. was <laughs> I mean, that's that's one way to stop it. It's the only way we had available at the time. <laughs> we literally got a kid spanked. That's yep. how we got this thing. <laughs> Some little Italian boy. <laughs> I mean, I think that's... That's a, the kind of crazy out-of-the-box sort of hacking that we were having to do kind of constantly to manage this site. <clears throat> it was. Another example um, that I didn't find out about till much, much, much later, um, I went out to this very weird exclusive um, uh, conference. There was like 15 people there. There was like the Secret Service and Google and uh, an evolutionary bi biologist and some malware people. And it was just a very weird group of people. I have no idea who funded it. I have no idea why we were there. Just very, very strange. But anyway, <clears throat> I was walking around with the Secret Service guy. I was taking a little walk, you know, between the, the sessions. And uh, I was telling him, like, he's like, oh, what do you do? Whatever. I was kind of explaining what was going on. He's like, I think I know you. I'm like, oh, yeah? He's like, yeah, I'm, a <clears throat> I'm on the advisory board of this company. And they came to me and they're like, hey, this guy tried to hack us. Uh, is there a way, can you put this guy in jail? And so he did some research and figured out what was going on. And well, what happened is someone on our website had had taken one of those things from the cross-site scripting sheet sheet. They'd injected it and um, and it worked. And so they're like, okay, well, we're, we're, we're definitely going to fix that, that issue. But what they did is they just removed the word script out of it. They're like... They didn't fix the actual vulnerability. They just removed, <clears throat> anytime they saw the word script, they would just remove the word script. So if you just put SRC and then script and then IPT at the end, it would remove script and leave script. And so um, <clears throat> I changed the attack payload very slightly so that it would work. So it would be an example of the, why you shouldn't use that type of 
uh, filter evade or uh, that type of filter because the cross-site scripting cheat sheet was all about filter evasion. Right. So suddenly this thing worked again and they decided they looked really, really bad. This is a security company. They don't want to look bad. They don't want to have these types of vulnerabilities. And, um, and they did. So he took one look at it and he's like, you can't put this guy in jail. Like you, you, he's not even hacking you. Like you're just not fixing this vulnerability properly. Thank God this guy got involved because he could have easily said, yeah, I can see like, you know, you're pulling in code from this website and he's the one who hosts this website and it's over. Right. There was all kinds of things like that one. I mean, that was the whole nineties and early two thousands people not understanding basically what security was, you know, Mm -hmm. for computers. So, and all of these exploits that we were playing with, not all, I should say, I should not say that, but the vast majority of the ones that we were talking about were things where it was extremely easy to repair and extremely bad that if it was there. So it's easy to show you and it doesn't do anything until you decide to do something with it. And none of these payloads actually do the bad thing, but they easily could. And so like uh, Sammy, for instance, uh, Sammy Kamkar, <clears throat> who maybe someday I'll get on the podcast. He proved that by injecting this bad piece of JavaScript, you could take over basically every single MySpace user in under 24 hours of uh, propagating. Right. And I think he opened a lot of people's eyes because he was able to finally show for the very first time, if you, if, if you're not careful with these tiny little, the seemingly minor little exploits, it's game over for your company. Like you, you'll literally have to shut down to repair this. Um, and you know, God knows how many more he didn't find, right? That was just the one he did find. So, so yeah, then we had that and we had the slackers trying to hack us. I mean, this is, this is all just us trying to keep this site online. I mean, we had enormous amount of traffic issues. We had hackers coming after us. We had, you know, the feds coming after us, um, potentially in all kinds of weird ways. Yeah, that, that, that's a legacy that had gone on for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, I was literally on the no-fly list, not no-fly list, but watch list. Mm-hmm. As early as a couple of years ago, I've just been walking through an airport and I get pulled out of line. Yeah, I, I certainly Because of that. it. <clears throat> I've certainly noticed that. So um, whenever I'm traveling with you, which isn't that common these days, but when it happens... I immediately say, James, I'm, I'm going to just, I'll meet you at the gate. <laughs> and why am I the guy? Why aren't you the guy? Was, I don't know. What did you do? <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it's funny because my, my significant other, um, we were flying through uh, Zurich. Mm-hmm. And we'd never done international travel together before then. <laughs> so she was not aware. <laughs> I told her. I'm like. You know, shit's going to happen. And, uh, yeah, we get off the airplane, and there's literally five people standing there waiting to escort me to the next plane for our transfer. <laughs> and then we got backroomed after that, of and, course. you know, everything searched, whatnot. <laughs> but it's like, no, this is my actual life all the time when I fly. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like, why even fly at this point? Why not just take the bus or Well, it's hard to train. take the bus to Switzerland. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, that is a little little cumbersome. But even here at Austin, I've been literally I have I don't even get to the security line and they'll say, 
Mr. Flump, come over here. I mean, sometimes it's convenient because I get to <laughs> bypass the entire security line. Oh, there's always an upside. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know what's going to happen. I mean, the worst one was in freaking Canada where you, you, know, you think Canadians are polite and nice, but mm-hmm. no, it was like three hours backroomed. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was unpleasant. I didn't hear about that one. But it's all the time. It's literally every time you fly. You're always. I talked to some FD, FBI friends. You know who they are. Yes. Um, and it quit for about two years and then right back on. Mm. Like I was somewhere like 34 flights in a row I was backroomed. It's beyond ridiculous. I mean, like. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> I don't know what they think I'm going to do on an airplane. <laughs> well, I have some ideas. Well, uh, I have lots of ideas, yeah, but know. that's not the point. <laughs> I'll get some I'll get some airplane guys on here at some point talking about airplane <laughs> security, but that's a whole other day. So um, one other thing that happened back um, back in the old end days uh, when we kind of first ish moved to Austin, we started having cigars pretty regularly with uh, a couple of security friends, and uh, it was a, a weekly thing. You know, we go in and we have a you know a couple of cigars or whatever, and you know, just chat with these, these guys and talk about security, talk about what's going on in the world and what's going on in the business. It was a just friendly, just hangout sort of situation. Nothing, nothing crazy. Much later on, I found out that one of them was a spook, um, and not for the U S government. Um, I know, I know, you know, but, um, there was a lot of weird things that happened like because of that and around that time period. And, um, and so it wasn't just that we were being approached and talked to by, let's say, our own government and a bunch of hackers and the reporters and all the sort of mess that goes along with the hacking world. We also were directly in the line of sight of these, you know, spooks. To a scary, I mean, an aside, I don't know if you're, sure. you're Go ahead. going so Um I was visiting Washington, D.C. And having a few beers with my cousin and was approached by these guys that, I don't know, they they look like the most clean-cut gov guys you could ever imagine. And they're like, hey, James. (laughs) Like, I don't don't know you. And they're like, yeah, now we're going to a party. You want to go to a party? Like, no. (laughs) Your cousin's going to go to the party. But secretly, you did want to go to the party. <laughs> Just to find out. Yeah, I know, I know. It's tempting. Because <laughs> I will fuck around. I know you will. I, I, it's super tempting to mess with these people. Oh, no, well, I, I, yeah, well, I won't say exactly what I did. But, yeah, it was, I did mess around. Mm-hmm. And, um, or maybe I fucked around. You put it however. But, yeah. So, in that guy's case in particular, when I was just talking about, um, I remember giving him this, again, I did not know he was a spook at the time. I was just kind of talking off the cuff. And a lot of the, what I usually tell people is there's about a third of the stuff I'll talk about. A third of the stuff I will talk about if I can prove it. And I'm still like kind of working through it. And so it's, it's still messy in my mind. There's a lot of like, maybe I haven't quite done the research yet. I'm still pulling the thread to see how far it goes. And there's a third of stuff I just will never talk about because I know it's too contentious and or I know I could never prove it because it's just not provable or at least not with the tools I've got. 
So it stays in the back burner. Sure. But this is an example that comes from that second category where I wasn't ready to talk about it because it's still, I'm still working through how, how you should talk about it, which was imagine uh, we're talking about spammers at the time. Like imagine there's a spectrum of things you could do on one end of the spectrum. There's literally nothing. You, you see a spammer and you see them spamming and you do literally nothing. You don't even talk to them. You just walk right past them. Right. On the other end of the spectrum, you have like murdering them, like the worst possible, like take them out sort of thing. And we have evidence now, uh, this is what I was telling this guy at the time, but this is, this is what was going on in my head to a friend in private. Uh, <laughs> um, but I said, you know, well, we have evidence uh, that this actually works, that murdering spammers actually works because there was some guy in Russia who uh, failed to pay his bill, we think, and some guy hit him with a hammer a whole bunch of times in the head and spam dropped. We saw spam go down. So we know murdering works. Um, I remember that exact incident. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> I had nothing to do with it, uh, just for the record. Uh, but it, we know it works. And so somewhere along that spectrum is the right amount of um, things to do to stop spam. Obviously, doing nothing is off the table because spam continues to grow. And obviously, murdering them is off the table because it's unethical. All right? Whatever. Right? But... There's somewhere on that spectrum that we should be and probably not where we are now because we still have a ton of spam. We probably have to move further down the list. Now, I'm not saying we should end up to murder or, you know, kidnapping their loved ones or whatever. Like, obviously, all this torture stuff down here, we're probably never going to get there. But we probably shouldn't do nothing and we probably shouldn't just slap them on the wrist only in certain jurisdictions. There's probably something further down the list. So that was that was my premise, right? I'm still working through, I'm still kind of wargaming how to think about it and how to talk about it. So after this guy gets recalled back to his country, um, he stays in touch with me. He's like, hey, Robert, I just want to let you know, like, I actually uh, got in touch with the government and I pitched them your idea. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? His government. <clears throat> I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, you remember that thing about like killing people or like doing nothing? I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, I pitched killing them. <laughs> I'm like, you did what? <laughs> He's like, well, I think it would work. And I, and the problem is like, they all kind of looked at me like I was crazy, but you know, we're kind of talking through it still. I'm like, what are you talking about? Spam assassination squads. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, which uh, by the way, I have no evidence that that ever ended up happening. So, I mean, he could have also been lying to me. Like there's really no way to know, but this is the kind of thing you have to deal with when you're running a site like this for as long as we were, you just became this incredibly weird target where everyone wants to like seed you with bad ideas or try to get you to do bad things or. Yeah. I enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. It is strangely enjoyable, but also it gets tiresome too. It really, it, sure. especially when you're sitting in the airport for three hours missing your flight because yes. Yeah. That was annoying. Yeah, of course. So we also did some crazy research around something called slow loris, um, which was used to take down a bunch of websites. Basically, is code that takes down uh, one of the most common web servers on the planet called Apache. Um, and with your help and one other guy who helped uh, help with some of the threading code, we basically were able to take down a huge chunk of the websites on the internet using this tiny little piece of code. And unlike a lot of code that does something similar, it was very low bandwidth. So you didn't have to have this crazy fast connection. You didn't have to have 10,000 machines at your control. 
you could literally do this from any machine anywhere. And I kind of got the idea of building something like this from a, a friend of mine, Robert E. Lee, uh, who had uh, something called Soxtris, which was able to take down a TCP IP stack using a single, which is every single thing that runs on the internet, basically, yep. uh, from a single machine. So we did this. We built this thing, and it was out there. And all of a sudden, people were starting to use it against Iran uh, during the Green Revolution when that was all happening. I mean, it was used against almost all of the Middle East. Like, or even North Africa, like Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, they were all taken down by it. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of people don't remember the Green Revolution, oddly enough. Um, I've asked, like, oh, you remember? And most people are just like, what? Yeah. What happened? Oh, you know, and thousands of people you know, died and protested and and they don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I... I mean, it was such a strange time for me for so many reasons. I even have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around all the things were happening at the time because a lot was going on. And and I was focused on work. I wasn't even I wasn't even thinking about this whole like what's going on in the Middle East at the moment, right? I was, I was running a company, trying to build this code and launch it. And yeah, the the funny part. I mean, before that part, the funny part is when you first noticed it. It was on a test server that we had in the lab um, when you noticed that Apache was vulnerable to this. Yeah, but I had been thinking about it for a long time. <clears throat> in fact, I probably came up with this idea originally, originally, back in the mid to late 90s. But I had never really thought of like how to actually code it up. Like that was the part I never really got like past the point. Like, And then I was in the shower one day, great mental image, I'm sure. And I was like, well... I think I know how to do it now. Like I finally spent the brain power necessary to actually try it. And then we, that's when we started playing around with like, well, would this actually work? And surprise, surprise. No, I remember you coming into my office one day mm -hmm. and saying, Hey, what's wrong with the server? Or I think I found something, whatever mm -hmm. it was. Yeah. And playing you, around. <laughs> you, no, you had written up an entire blog post. And you're like, I'm going to publish it. I'm like, no, you're not. Because <laughs> the first <laughs> the first victim is going to be us. Uh huh. Uh huh. And you're like, okay. And then it was like, that's I was true. I forgot all about that. I was trying to figure out how to yeah. mitigate it. Yeah, that's right. Which I eventually did, mm -hmm. but I'm like, it was to me. It was like every hour you're coming and can I publish it now? <laughs> <laughs> can I tell everyone like no I haven't figured out how to fix this yet <laughs> yeah that's true I have forgotten all about that and then in the process of doing that I know I'm annoying sometimes in the process of doing that we actually found another issue in Apache and in, uh, in um, this uh, very specific library that's supposed to stop this exact issue from happening yep. uh, and we worked around that um, yeah and that, that was kind of the beginning I think of um, the odd phone calls coming in out of nowhere um, where I just get these very disgruntled people like, hello, Mr. Hansen. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay, here's the deal. This websites are going down. We need them back up immediately. I'm like, and your name is, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, the answer should have been how much money do you have? Uh, well, these were, these were, <laughs> these were very pissed off government sounding people. Uh, but one of, more money. one of the things that was interesting is it was not supposed to take down things like PayPal or eBay or whatever. I remember specifically saying them by name. You're not going to be able to take out eBay. You're not supposed to, you're not going to be take down uh, PayPal because they have a load balancer in front of them. So yeah. it's going to bounce right off. 
but uh, there's a whole bunch of eBay and PayPal that are not behind that load balancer. And all of a sudden, PayPal is getting taken down right and left. And they're like, hey, Robert, like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? <laughs> Can you please help? <laughs> and the unfortunate answer was not really. Um, the tools did not exist. That was the problem. Um, no, and I mean, a certain load balancer company spent uh, some money fixing that mm-hmm. because it did go through their load balancer initially. Mm-hmm. And they had to build in a filter for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, and then eventually it became a big sales thing. Like people were like, "Oh, we we can protect against Slowloris." And for those of you who don't know, Slowloris is this like really cute little endangered animal with very venomous teeth, um, and uh, poisonous, poisonous because it's bacteria. It's not a venom, uh, whatever. Anyway, so he, he'll bite you, and you get infected, and and then you die. But so people extract their teeth to like have these little cute little pets, which is why they're endangered and. But they're very slow moving, which I thought was really cute. It's this tiny little thing. My code is very tiny. It's very slow. This tiny little thing. It speaks very slowly to servers, but it does it a lot. Yep. It speaks to it hundreds of times in a row, but very, 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 very slowly. So in that process, it would take the whole thing down. But but uh, the other one that was around that same time frame was the Great Firewall of China research that we were doing. Like, can you send specific payloads across the firewall to get it to shut off the connection for a certain amount of time? And I remember we got it down to the size of a tweet. We could get the entire code into a tweet. Um, it, I mean, it wasn't super elegant code, but it would fit in a tweet. And I remember I, I did a very brief presentation on this uh, many years ago and uh, only once and it wasn't recorded. And so there's no evidence that this thing even occurred. But, but I remember a guy came up to me afterwards. He's like, and he wasn't saying it ironically. He's like, are you sure you should be doing it? Are you, do you think you're going to die? And he, and he meant it like today, <laughs> like, <laughs> like the Chinese government's going to come after you. What are you doing? Um, yes. Neither of us can ever visit Russia or China. Yeah. Or North Korea or, well, or Iran. Probably several other places. Yeah. But, but those in particular, those are definitely off limits for me. Um, but, uh, but that China research that, I think that was a, it was a, a point at which I decided I was just going to keep doing what I was doing. I kind of ended up eventually doing some research against the Nanera browser, Red Star operating system, North Korea's um, operating system mm-hmm. and their browser. And uh, I just kind of kept going. I just didn't stop. I just, I decided at this point it was better to, to show people what was really going on than shy away from it. Yeah. And you were there. You you had to, you clearly had to make the same decision, but probably much earlier than I did. I mean, yeah. But speaking of the if stories, great the firewall in China. Um, I think one of the most interesting research that I did on that part was not involved, obviously, with web browsers or anything like that. Right. But it was uh, we were asked by a client to figure out how s- spies they had in China could exfiltrate data through it. Mm-hmm. And we decided, or I decided, that video games mm-hmm. were a great way to transfer information. Yeah, so, they're encrypted. Everyone's got them. It doesn't look like weird traffic. If you, you get caught go, with one, who cares? You got a video game. You're Yeah, you go to an internet cafe. You don't even have to have it, So, mm-hmm. which was you know, much yeah. bigger back then, so... Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I always like that technique as well. Um, and exfiltrating data is quite important. 
my code uh, at the time was designed to break the Great Firewall of China by using its censorship system against itself. Yep. So for those of you who don't know, if you send certain payloads across the firewall and it sees them, it's like, hey, hey, you're a bad guy, and it shuts it off. And so you basically just don't go to these websites anymore. That's largely been uh, deprecated both by virtue of everyone switching to HTTPS versus HTTP. So yep. that's good for security um, and allows people to finally transit the firewall. Uh, but also it makes it uh, irrelevant in the face of things like Sesame Credit, um, which I talked about on one of the other podcasts. Um, I think I talked it with uh, Jennifer Richmond, maybe episode two or three or something. I think China has done a really, really good job of making their censorship system not needing to use censorship anymore. They could just use their own populace against themselves. It's yep. the it's the inform your on your neighbor the whole who you don't need a jackbooted Stasi anymore. You can just have your neighbor worried about you and yep. not wanting their credit rating to go down. It's pretty crazy. It is. So the other big one was clickjacking. Yep. Uh, so that caused quite a stir as well. Um, if I recall, one of the major problems with clickjacking wasn't. Unlike a lot of the other things we did, it wasn't like this is everything's going to be vulnerable to it, even though everything was vulnerable to it. But it was like, if you're vulnerable to this, you're probably vulnerable to something less complicated than this. You should probably fix that first. And then, yes, you're also vulnerable to clickjacking. Yeah. Um, I remember like people would say to me things like, well, you should do something like people don't know who you are in the real world. You should invent something like like jacking. I'm like, I invented click jacking. <laughs> like jacking is click jacking. So um, Jeremiah Grossman and I collaborated on that research. And um, and I remember the the biggest thing that caused the most controversy is we had to pull it back at the last minute. Like we were about to do, I think we were up in New York. We were about to launch the research and Adobe came to us and like, please don't do this. Like, because in the Adobe Flash Manager, we could turn on your camera and microphone using click tracking. Uh, we could also get full access to your, your entire system as well, which, you know, effectively is the same thing as access to camera and microphone. But our idea was, why don't we just create a social network based on hacked machines? So everyone just auto-create some dorky picture of them sitting there trying to click on something. Uh, <laughs> that's their profile picture, yep. <laughs> extract all the information from their computer. And, uh, you know, um, it was a fun joke, but we didn't, we never actually went through with it, but that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of research we were producing. And, um, I remember another one that, uh, I, I forgot to mention earlier was a lot of the DNS rebinding research. This is where you became extremely useful. So we had a rack of machines, actually two racks of machines in our office. Mm-hmm. And, um, I would come in with these crazy ideas like pretty regularly, like James, I want to do this and this and this. And you're like, ah, it's like a lot of work. I got to sit this thing up and set this thing up. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but, but here's why. And we'd whiteboard the whole thing out. And, and, uh, eventually I'd convince you. And cause I knew it would be like way more work for you than it was for me to set it up because it was, yeah, it was always way, it's <laughs> always more work for you than it was for me. For me, I just came up with the idea. So I got this idea, but I still need someone to like implement the, the host part of this or create a DNS server or like make the firewall turn on and off in weird ways at weird times. And you know, like all this strange research, uh, yep. <laughs> yep. And to this day, I still have not found a lab that was anywhere near as sophisticated as ours for how small it was. It was tiny. It was just, you know, you know, probably 20 machines or something. Yep. Um, but the DNS rebinding research was very interesting because uh, it was research that had been done many, many years before uh, 
by a uh, Italian uh, professor, I believe. And he just couldn't figure out how to use it. He's like, there's this thing you can do, but I just can't figure out what you would do with it. And then I realized that if you combine some of his research with some of my research, you suddenly could do something really interesting, but I couldn't prove it. There's no way to do it without building these custom DNS servers and like custom firewall rules and like being able to turn things on and off in like really weird ways. And that's where I think the magic happened. That's why I think your skill set and my skill set, despite how f- totally different they really are, like really quite different. Very. We, we became extremely potent together. Uh, there was no way for me to do a lot of the things I was doing by myself. I just could not get all the components working, with, at least without a tremendous amount of work that I wasn't prepared to do. Right. So I probably would have bailed on a huge amount of research that ended up being extremely vital, very interesting research um, that was later parlayed in all kinds of things and um, I know was weaponized later on in multiple ways. Um, and further research that you know begot that and researchers who you know, their entire career started kind of spanning off of that. And Dan Kaminsky did a lot of research on DNS afterwards. Um, so, but again, you could, I could not have done any of that without the the network components, the host components, all that weird, like I need to build a, a custom thing that does this weird, very specific thing. Sorry, James, I know how complicated this is or sort of. <laughs> Sorry, not going to have any rest tonight. <laughs> Because Robert's coming in and bothering me every hour. <laughs> I like to think it was every other hour, but you never know. <laughs> Are you done yet? Come on, James. <laughs> Can I just press publish? Um, I do remember saying, God damn it, James, probably at least a million times in my life. Because uh, things would like sort of work, but they wouldn't quite work. And I'm like, ah, this isn't doing what I want it to do. And it should do this other thing. And you're like, you didn't say that. And I'm like, well, I kind of thought you would understand because these five other reasons. And Yes. And you'd always say it'll be done tonight. And it was never, ever, 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 ever done that night. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so... Okay, I want to talk about something that I was always personally extremely annoyed about. So between you and me and a couple of our guys, we were quite good. I would say some of the best in the world at doing what we were doing, um, especially sure. for how small we were. I mean, there, I'm sure there's other teams that have more people and therefore could you know slice and dice things better than we could have, or maybe in different areas of security than we didn't touch. But in terms of where we were and the types of t- assessments we were focused on, network and web application security testing, I just don't think we had a whole lot of comparable people out there at the time. Um, But we ran afoul of a whole bunch of times that we were simply too good. Like really, we were far too good. So you already mentioned the time when we hacked, uh, you know, a huge chunk of China. Um, That was a situation where we were, we were supposed to do kind of okay at that pen test. We were penetration test. We're supposed to do okay, but we did so much above and beyond that I think the the potential acquirers who wanted to buy our company, they just they couldn't wrap their head around how dangerous this small group of people were. Like we hacked them the right way, but we also hacked them in a very not right way. And um, I think that that spooked them. And I think that that's the kind of. Did you ever notice that we were we were quite often like, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some other examples to jog your memory. So. There was one example where we were brought in by a company that does like flight control software, flight control systems. Yes. Um, and they, there was a relatively big company, I would say, medium-sized big company. Um, 
but uh, they brought us in because they thought we would fail. Uh, their CEO had basically told, he had, he had advised his like head of security, find some small little company out there who can do it. And with the intention of like, make sure that this is, we're going to win this one. We really, really want to be secure. And so we had no idea that that was what's going on. You and I were just brought in and this guy definitely had ulterior motives. He definitely wanted to prove how broken things really were for the purpose of making sure that he was not blamed eventually when they got hacked. He wanted to make sure, you know, he was fairly new to the company. He wanted to do well. Um, and he didn't care if it made the executive team look bad. So we went in there and we destroyed them. I mean, we, I, I mean, you almost couldn't have hacked them worse, even if you had written a Hollywood script to do it. I mean, yeah, we had persistence that they tried to figure out and, they couldn't even figure out how we were persisting in their networks. We, we were, we were, I, in fact, they were so vulnerable to so many different things that I literally would try things I was sure wouldn't work. And they worked because they, they had designed their system in such a bizarre way. And it had grown for so many years over so many different versions of the system that they had, they like, if you're sending this type of payload, they're like, Oh, well, you're probably trying to talk to this machine over here. They would send you to a vulnerable machine instead of just saying like, what are you, what are you trying to do here? is a very dangerously built system. If I remember right, you were actually popping shells from a web browser. Oh yeah. 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 Like, I was, I was literally like running bash and yeah. netcat yeah. on a port just Which, from the browser. From the browser. Because <laughs> your web server should definitely have netcat installed on it. Yeah, of course. So I <laughs> exactly. So I remember sitting down in this meeting and we, we did the big reveal. It's what I call the prestige. If you've ever seen the movie, the prestige, the, mm -hmm. the three set, uh, three different parts of a magic trick. I always called this part, the prestige, which is when you finally reveal the trick and like how it all worked and whatever. And like, you know, here's how badly you were hacked and the looks on their faces. They weren't like, Oh, thank God. We found somebody who could really get in there and do a good job. They were just like, I mean, a mix of confused and livid. Like, how did this happen? How did we, how did this occur? Like we, we specifically brought in this tiny little company to fail or, or to find nothing or very little, like maybe one or two small flaws that are easy to fix. Right. But we, we definitely went way, 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 way beyond where I think even, even the guy who brought us in expected us to get. Like, I think that's a problem. Like we, we went so far beyond where, any expectations of our success could possibly go that ended up being a detriment to us. And we were not invited back. That happened many times. I know. I mean, it was, that's my point. <laughs> I mean, and, and I think things have changed in the security landscape where people are more accepting of results. Maybe to some extent, maybe just, yeah. But back then you're like, you're vulnerable. No. Um, yeah. I, I actually have, complete access to your system. Well, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, but it, that, it that is like, to your customers. <laughs> no, that was literally like the first five years of sec theory was before, I think before acceptance set in mm -hmm. of some sort in security. Um, it was just denial all the way. And that even varies between like remote devs all over the world, um, you have to take cultural considerations into that as well. Of course, yeah. 
because they have different ways of responding to, you know. Yeah, a, a good example is we did an assessment against a very large um, firewall web application security um, web, web application firewall company. And uh, they had a whole bunch of Israeli developers. And I remember we were supposed, we had, they gave us months to do this assessment. They weren't going to pay us for it, but we were kind of curious about it. They, they did not pay us a, a dime for this, but they are like, well, if you guys want to play with it, we'll give you one to play with because we're going to be partners or something. And so they wanted to make sure everything's kosher. So like uh, the license expired on whatever day it was. Right. And so Two days before it expired, I'm, I suddenly realized how much time we had left, which is nothing. And I was about to leave to do something. So I'm like, oh my, okay, so that's what we're doing tomorrow. That's all we're doing tomorrow. We're just going to test this thing. In one, you know, by eight hour stint with me and one other of our web guys, um, we found, I don't know, like 20 or 30 different vulnerabilities in, in this very popular, very important piece of hardware that everyone it's all these enormous companies literally use. still sitting in my garage yeah oh really <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the license is expired uh but this is the kind of thing where like that should have been like well thank thank god we actually had you do this test right that is not how that went down at all they were uh, super annoyed at us they did not like they didn't, first of all, they're like, why would anyone ever attack it like this? What do you mean? Why would they attack it like this? What does that mean? They'll attack it. How are they going to attack it? Right. Well, how would they know these things are, would, are going to be there? Well, because we know they're there. And if they've ever seen one of these devices before, they're going to be able to attack it and on and on. And all these very accusatory, you know, and again, I think this is a bit of a cultural thing, but also they were very, um, un, very unhappy with the results um, and we're just trying to, we did exactly what we said we were going to do effectively, except like, yes, took us way too long to do it. <laughs> Our main point of contact, I still keep in contact with. Oh, do you really? Okay. Yeah. Surprisingly, I just ran into him at RSA a couple of years ago and, uh, I don't think he was ever the problem. No, no, I don't think so either. But yeah, the rest of their team was freaked. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, there was another example. I'm going to give you a couple. There's a, another example where there was this bank and they got very badly compromised and they came to us and said, um, um, cause we had done a penetration test on them before. And they're like, well, we want you to like get in and figure out what happened. And so we got in there and it took a little while to figure out what was going on. Cause it was actually kind of complicated. It turned out that it was this, uh, this like demo software that they had that was vulnerable. And, um, I remember distinctly, they were very annoyed with this. Like, why didn't you find this? And it's like, because it's demo software. It's not installed on the machine that we were testing. You didn't have it there. So how would we have found it? Um, so they were annoyed about that, but that could have been, I mean, if that was the only thing that would have been fine. Right. But then they got us into a meeting and they're just like, well, we need to know how bad this compromise was. And I'm like, well, I mean, they compromised every single one of your users over this time period. Um, and they compromised these like 10 subsidiary banks, um, all of them. And then, um, they probably have access to this and this and this and this and all these different things like down the pipe because they had full access to all these user accounts. Yep. And it, it was a pretty lengthy list of things that they could have access to. I wasn't sure if they did have access to just based on the way the logs were built. And I remember this executive on the other line was just fuming at me, fuming because from his perspective, I had just made him look like a complete idiot. Like, um, like, 
you're scaring everybody and making things look like way worse than they are. I'm like, I'm not, well, if, if they're scared, that's, that's their problem. I'm just telling you what's possible. Like what, what could you do and what is at risk at this point? And he was not having it. He was insanely, I, do you remember this? I, I remember this and it was actually two different um, entities. So yeah. whereas it was the bank and it was the software that was provided to the bank. Yes. Um, I actually thought the bank was fairly cool about it. Yeah. It was the software provider for the bank that had a problem with it. Yeah. And. But they were the ones who ultimately hired us. So why hire us if you don't want to know? No, the bank hired us. No. Yeah. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. Well, maybe I'm wrong about that. So what happened was the security officer for the bank was, or president of the bank was actually had to drive. I won't say where, but I went down there with one One of of our our employees. um, And once we figured it out, we figured out the hack and he's like, yeah, well, what it was, I believe nothing against Ukraine, but I believe it was Ukrainian developer. Mm Mm-hmm. They had hired, mm-hmm. had inserted this code into it. And uh, yeah, so he ended up actually contacting the the bank security guy, bank president. Um, he ended up going out and contacting every other bank he could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, our employee at the time and I did a bunch of research on how many other banks were vulnerable because that one was vulnerable because the software was vulnerable. So who used the software? So the, the guy from the bank ended up contacting everybody that we told him that was, I see. So, so there was the good guy. I see. So he, he (laughs) was the one who was causing the real problems. It wasn't really us. I mean, he was the one who was just making that software look like it was what it was, which is very vulnerable software that had led to compromises of all those companies. Not every single bank that used the, the software is vulnerable, only the ones that had that particular feature turned on. So it was, it was the change that that developer had made and yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But no, no, the bank was the good guy, the software provider. I see. Bad guy. So there was another bank that we did an assessment on and uh, this is very similar situation, but this was even weirder where they, they actually sent somebody on site to physically sit over my shoulder and watch every single keystroke to make sure I wasn't hacking them, which I was supposed to do. But I guess this person who's absolutely unqualified to look over my shoulder is somehow going to catch me doing the bad thing, you know, having no context for what I'm doing whatsoever. Um, <clears throat> and not stopping the person in the very next room from doing the very you know opposite thing that I'm doing. So this is all quite silly. But I remember I found a, a issue with their uh, CAPTCHA system, a completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart, which is basically that little squiggly words and letters and whatever that you have to type in. And so I, I found an issue with it where I could uh, calculate every single possible CAPTCHA um, so I didn't have to worry about being stopped by it anymore. I could just bypass it completely effectively. And it took quite a while to program it up and I got it all working and it works. It worked like 99.8%, which is basically hundred percent of the time. And they got back in touch with me and they're like, you know, why did you waste so much time doing this? Like you should have been testing these other things. And like it, uh, later I found out actually we were the only company that they had tested that they had 
ever had found any vulnerabilities in them ever. And I'm like, well, of course, because they never got past that first page. That was the entire point is I had to get past that first page uh, with the with the robots, with the things that I was using to test with. And um, and so they were very they were very annoyed. Like, why did you waste so much time on this? You shouldn't waste so much time. And uh, and then they said something like you could have hired a team out of, you know, Romania or whatever, just to break it by hand. And you would have, it would have been cheaper. Like, why did you bother building this? And it occurred to me that they were right, but in a, not in a way that they thought they were right. If you just pulled down all of these captures and had them, uh, typed in by these Romanian developers or whatever, uh, or Romanian capture breaking people, uh, or Pakistani or wherever the cheapest labor was at that time. And th- we had a list of the all where the cheapest labor was for these capture breaking crews. Um, it was actually quite popular. It was on the website, as a matter of fact. Um, I know. <laughs> uh, it was quite interesting watching them bid each other down. Um, but wherever the cheapest labor was, they're right. It was cheaper. But what ended up happening is now I'd have a library of every broken CAPTCHA. And so I could just replay this thing over and over again. I'd only have to break it once per CAPTCHA. And it was a very small, finite list of possible uh, combinations. And as a result, I would, yes, indeed, it would have been maybe $1,000 cheaper or something to have done it the way he was describing it. But it would have been perfect. And that actually proves their CAPTCHA was broken in a completely different way than I was actually trying to break it. And it actually, it was worse the way he described it, like you actually, you actually explain how your thing is worse than you're even thinking it is. And, um, they were really annoyed with me, like very annoyed. Like, like you shouldn't be, but later I found out like no one had even gotten past that first page. So obviously no one's going to find any vulnerabilities because everyone's stuck on that first page. So you had to do this very specific thing just to get to the point where you're going to do the proper test. And that's one of the things about a lot of pen testing is people want performative. They don't want results. And they're required by whatever, maybe socks or something to actually get something done. Mm-hmm. But they, but if, you, if, if they hire you and you create more work for them, they don't want to be, they don't want that. Right. I remember one other time I was at Microsoft and um, this, this should have been kind of a nothing conversation. They just wanted me to come in and advise them on some stuff. And it's like a day long thing. Just come in. We want to ask you some questions. Okay. No problem. And um, I ended up uh, funny enough, since I mentioned it, that that whole thing, doing nothing and killing people, that whole spectrum thing. Uh, so I brought that up and um uh, not, not in context of go kill people again, right? Just to be super, super clear on this. I'm just saying maybe you should do more than nothing, you know, maybe sanctions or something, you know, like maybe you could, uh, start passing some laws, you know, something more this direction than literally nothing or spanking them, you know, saying you're not allowed to send email anymore to this address. Like that's kind of the stuff that they were doing at the time. Right. And, uh, I remember I had this other conversation with them at the same, in the same meeting where I was, I was trying to explain to them, uh, they should be looking in certain areas for certain bad guys because I happen to know that certain bad guys were looking at very specific parts of Microsoft and monetizing the living shit out of these things. Like just an enormous amount of money being stolen um, and maybe not stolen in the way you're thinking, maybe not stolen in the way that the FBI is involved, but stolen in the sense that you don't know what's going out the door and you should probably fix these things because you're you're losing on a money for no reason. You don't have to do this. After it was all said and done, they basically 
kind of semi-perma banned me from the Microsoft campus because of the whole like murder people thing, uh, which again, I did not say. <laughs> Love people taking me out of context. Uh, yeah. Funny point. Yeah. When you were there, uh-huh. we had to hack your way out of their network. So you That's could connect true. back. That is true. That was a different time I was there, but yes. Uh, okay. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was a different we, time. We, we hacked Microsoft. We had to hack Microsoft. Yes. <laughs> uh, which... <laughs> It's just, and that wasn't even part of the test. That was just so that I could reach out and do stuff that I needed to do for the test. Like, it's very, very silly. And, you know, hacking Microsoft proper, like Microsoft, not like the operating system, like the whole company. Yeah. Whatever. That's kind of another day in life. Uh, So I'm not surprised I'm not allowed on the campus anymore. (laughs) Um, You know, it's funny because I really was ultimately trying to help them. Um, And that, that, I feel like that's a common thread throughout all these conversations we're always just trying to help we're always just trying to make things a little bit better and and it's just it's such a nightmare like dealing with the politics and people's misunderstandings and yeah people just don't get what hacking actually is and they they're they're adamant that it must look like this and it must be fit in this box and it must you must come to us with this type of report and say it in this sure. way and i'm but sorry that's media's not, influence that so much yeah sure like has. The, the opinion so go ahead why what in what way because, well, A, like I said earlier, hacking, hacker, is probably bad way to, to describe what we do. Because it can mean too many things. Um, and one of the biggest problems in, I mean, not just computer security, but in computers at all, is misterminology mm-hmm. or making terminology too broad. Um, and so people get an idea of, they heard a word, they heard an idea, concept, whatever, and then they try and apply it to what you just told them. And that doesn't really work. Um, I mean, a hacker could be someone with an ax. <laughs> you can, if you get through a door. <laughs> yeah. And then you get whatever you need. Yeah, there, there's been some really crazy incidents. Um, I remember I have a bunch of screenshots somewhere. I'll see if I can find them um, at some point. But it was like, a two-man, uh, sorry, two-car team broke through the front gate, and then they had a sledgehammer. They went to the side of the building. They smashed the window, reached in, opened the door. It was a steel door, but there was a window right next to it, so they just opened up. Uh, went through, went into interior office, sledgehammer through, uh, through the door itself, um, which is like a super lightweight door, opened that up. And then there's a sub-interior door, which also had a little pane of glass next to it, same sledgehammer opened it up, went inside, and then that was the data center room. And then they took a drill, undrilled the very specific machine they were after, and then left. So the entire thing probably lasted, what, maybe 10 minutes max yep. um, in and out. And that very specific machine they were after had some extremely sensitive pieces of code on it. And you're never getting that back. Um, that's nope. that's gone. Um, and I would say absolutely those are hackers. They're just a different genre of hackers than people are used to. Right. So the media's perception of hackers um, has formed the opinions of everybody. And so, yeah, it's not valid anymore. It it, it should be described a different way. How should it be described? It's probably not going to be described in a way that's going to be relatable to most people. Go ahead. Which is the problem, right? Go ahead. Try, try. How would you describe it? Describe hacking yeah. in general. Yeah. If you were to talk to a Hollywood producer, like, hey, Chris, are you listening? 
Like what, what, what would, what would it take to make you write a hacker in a more accurate way? I mean, hacking in and of itself is a mindset, right? It's not a single thing in any way. Like you can hack hardware, you can hack through a door, you can hack software, you can hack people. Yeah. Hack minds. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's too broad of a term. So because security has grown so much since we started our careers, Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be probably redefined as to what each part of it is. So network security, web application security, network security security is not even an accurate description of network security. Yeah, I know. So what, what would you do then? What would, how do you describe to Hollywood what they should know. I mean, I think that that's the problem is we don't even have the right words in our own industry to describe it. I mean, I know what you're saying because I know you and I've been in this industry a long time, but I couldn't just say, okay, here's what network security looks like in a way that's relatable. I mean, it's all going to have to be a, a pretty but, gooey on top of it, some WYSIWYG that makes it look pretty. Otherwise, they're just not going to know what you're talking about. The audience I mean, can't visualize it. Right. I agree with you. I just don't know how you fix it. I think it's one of the problems is that um, people no longer, they because everything's out there, people think they know everything, but they don't. But the internet tells them they do because they look something up. And so describing what we do is never going to be some like, I'm a hacker. Mm-hmm. It's not a five minute conversation. It's not. It's like talk to a quantum physicist. You're not going to know what they do. They did 10 years of research just to get that title. Right. Mm-hmm. You you have to put effort into things and nobody wants to put effort into things anymore. They just want whatever is now. So when we describe things, it's not that you can describe some to someone that doesn't have prior knowledge of at least the general thing that you're talking about. I think that's one of the biggest problems with security in general or compute in general at this point. There was this uh, time this partner uh, customer came into our office and uh, he sat down and this guy's from overseas. And so it was just you and me and him in this room and and he said uh, he wanted to kind of quiz us on like our sort of data security. Really, I think he just really wanted to check out our office. He was really, really curious. And he flew all the way over from Denmark. <clears throat> and um, he asked me, um, what would you do if James went bad? You know, like what happens? Like James decides to do something bad. What are you going to do about it? I'm like, what are you talking about? There was nothing I could do. It's, it's a different area of security completely. Like I have no control over any aspects of what James is doing. And, and furthermore, even if you had an expert who you thought was able to stop James, they probably still wouldn't be able to do anything because James is extremely, extremely good at this very specific area of security. Like there's nothing, there's literally nothing that can be done. Like you just have to trust him. It's impossible to, to stop this. 
If he wants to hack you, you're done. Yeah. And then he asked the follow-up question. He asked you what you would do if I went rogue. Do you remember your answer? No. It was basically the same answer. Like, I don't know anything about websites. Like, how, how, oh, <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think that is kind of making your point, though. You, you can't isolate security um, as one kind of amorphic blob. It doesn't work that way. We, we really have very different domains of expertise. And that makes it, it's hard to communicate in some cases because I'm really talking about web stuff. And you're like, yeah, 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 but there's this networking component. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but networks don't matter in this context. And you're like, of course they matter. They always matter. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but, and it's always this weird back and forth where it's not like we're talking past each other, but we're always trying to find this common ground where these things meet. And that's kind of where the magic between you and I have, I think has always been is eventually we'll figure out where they land. And then there's something usually very interesting there because you know, something I don't know. And I know something you don't know. And we just land in this weird spot in the middle and there's no, no there's no expert anywhere who knows both of those things. No, I mean, we're a duo in that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. S- superpowers, bam. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get a ring or something. <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> um, so why do you think after all it's said and done, I, I wanted to run through all those examples to uh, illustrate that this isn't like a one-time thing. This happened many, many, many times where so many, um, and I, I'm, I'm sure I've missed a bunch of others as well, but why do you think being good at security ended up becoming a detriment? I mean, it's just misunderstanding, right? I mean, detriment in what way? And detriment in the fact that we didn't get follow-up contracts. We, I literally got banned from campuses I mean, there, there was yeah. a lot of things that I did right that ended up becoming a problem. Yeah. Lying. Um, but yeah. I, it's just ignorance of what we do. And it, it's the same thing. It goes back to you have to have an understanding, a basic understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. And if you don't, People are confused by it and people don't like change. They don't like confusion. They don't like not knowing and understanding. And what we do is we've spent years and years and years of our lives figuring it out. And they've spent five minutes on the internet trying to understand it. And then you can't, you can't take the knowledge or the reasoning that we use to keep them safe, um, you can't absorb that in a short amount of time. So why do you think security is so hard? Is it just that it's a lot or is it that the concepts themselves individually are hard or both or what, what do you think, what do you think the barrier to entry is for the newbies who are coming in that makes it almost incomprehensibly difficult? I think those are two different things. One is we think different than most people. Um, It's fairly important because people build things not with the thought of them being broken. They build things for whatever useful purpose they want. And we look at things and go like, "Ah, I can break that shit. Mm -hmm. Um, For newbies coming in, 
they need to learn that obviously. So they so need it's a mindset issue. It, it is a mindset issue, but it goes back to where I was saying you need to understand the technology better from the base up before you get into the hacking part of it, which I mean, it's not always going to work out that way. And you know, you could go either way, but you're going to be a better hacker if you start out with a knowledge base and know how to program and kind of have a concept of the history of it. Like I find myself going back and looking at really old security documents that I haven't either haven't read in many, many, many years, or maybe never got around to reading. I always kind of meant to read that one. And I get back there and I'm like, Oh my God, that, that I bet this and this and this are broken. And I found a lot of stuff that way, just these old, old, old documents. And, and the other thing is, and there are documents out there that everyone will tell you to read. Go read the RFCs. It's a very common thing to tell people to go do. Go read the RFCs. And you get there, and that is not how things work at all. Like, uh, RFCs are almost all bullshit. <laughs> but but, but, but the, the strange part is, effectively, everybody telling people what to how things work will point to the RFCs and say, well, just read the RFCs. And you're like, well, I mean... That's how it might should have worked uh, had they not taken a whole bunch of performance shortcuts and you know added 20 layers of XYZ on top of this. And oh, and by the way, there's this new standard that completely blows that whole thing away and et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a lot of hidden complexity in the way the world works, the way the internet works. Yeah, I think one of the problems with the RFCs is they're not living documents that are constantly changing. So if you look at like the OSI model... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh out loud. <laughs> no, you should. Uh, totally. Yeah. But, I mean, it should be a living document that is updated constantly. Mm -hmm. It's not, yes, it was a great reference in 1977 or whatever. Maybe. <laughs> maybe it was. <laughs> maybe maybe it predates my understanding of what good documents should look like. But, um, but it, it should all the RFCs should be living documents that are constantly updated. Yeah. They should be more like wikis than they should be full on documents. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Um, I very frequently back in the day would build these, these things and say like, this is a living document. Don't consider it complete. Like this isn't the end of this thing. I'm going to make updates to it whenever, whenever I would do that thing. Like, like I know that I'm going to come back to this thing over time. Um, and I think, I think more things could be like that. But I also think that people shouldn't treat these things as if they're sacrosanct. You know, these are not, these are fallible people writing documents with very limited understanding. And, and RFCs are at the beginning. You know, they, they do this, all this work to come up with these, these ideas of how things should work. But they haven't implemented it yet. They haven't actually done it yet. And so obviously you're going to make mistakes. You're going to, and then you're going to get there and you're like, oh, actually it would be kind of nice if we had these two or three extra features and, oh, and by the way, we can get a patent if we do this extra thing. And, and all of a sudden this thing's way different than you originally got the spec on. And I think that's just how things grow. And then, you know, through three acquisitions and they got 20 other things going on and you've got to make these two things talk to one another. And then it's just way too complicated for any one person to totally understand. Yeah. It's funny, I was reading RFC a couple weeks ago, and it was literally had a comment in there that 
that said, this is a terrible way to describe this, <laughs> but it's in the RFC and we can't change it now. And that was it. It was just like. Yeah. I mean, the part of the HTTP spec that just to this day just always has always made me laugh is there's a misspelling in it. Uh, and it's in the refer. Uh, it's one R instead of two R's. And so your browser, every time you go from one page to another page, it sends this refer header. It's like, where do, where were you just at before you got to this web page? And every single one of those requests, every time you go from one page to another page, you're sending a misspelling across the internet. And that's just kind of how the RFCs are. They're they're fallible. They're written by people who and and we're way too far gone to fix that spelling mistake. That that is that is 20, 30 years of technical debt to go back and fix that one spelling mistake. We cannot do it. It is way too complicated. We're, we're just declare bankruptcy on that spelling mistake. And if you if you if I can explain that one tiny little issue that everyone's going to understand, imagine how many other things are messed up. And that's where we are. No, the creator of the uh, URL actually went back and said making two slashes was a huge mistake <laughs> because the number of people that man hours of just, you know, clicking on another slash and the computational power, there was no point in it. Yeah. But it's been done trillions of times now. At least. Probably yeah. a lot more than that. So what bugs you about InfoSec? Like what, if you could change something about our industry, um, like just wave a magic wand and fix it, or, or let's say maybe not magic and just say you wish people would pay attention to this piece of advice and start adhering to it. What, what do you think you would change? I think it's really taking, I mean, what we were at before where your carp, you're, you're taking networks and actually dividing them up. Correctly. Carving up the networks. Yeah. And on top of that, just compartmentalizing everything. And containers kind of try and do that, but they don't do it from a security aspect. Um, and you can't fix people. People are always going to suck at security. There's, there's no way they're going to get good at it. So you have to always build technical controls. Like, I think security training is almost pointless mm. um, outside of security engineers, someone you're teaching to do a specific thing. You're not going to get your average employee to do anything right. So, yeah. I have noticed a, in, just in the last 10 years or so, a massive decline and technical capabilities of the people I talk to within various companies. Yeah. So when when you and I were getting started, when you when we talked to an average customer, they actually knew what we were talking about. Um, they may not know exactly what we're doing, but they had a pretty firm grasp on anything we were talking about. And we did, I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time explaining any way exploits work or whatever. There's a couple occasions where that's not true, obviously. I mean, I'm not saying it was uniform, but... But I remember like people would at the conferences, they'd say, how many people know about this exploit? And people would raise their hands. And gradually over the years, that went from like one or two people to the entire audience knows what you're talking about. And so that that's and I that was echoed in all these companies we were talking to. All of these companies had relatively good experts. I don't I don't know if you've seen the same thing, but in the last 10 years, I've seen a massive decrease in capability. Massive. Like they're saying things that we have not known to not be true for 20 plus years. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they're saying it confidently, like they learned it in school or something. You know what I mean? Like, like this is how it is. I'm like, that is not how it is at all. I don't know what you're talking about. And the, I think it might be attributed to the fact that, I mean, frankly, there's a very limited amount of people who know what they're doing and they're aging out. They're becoming executives. Uh, they're moving to other industries. They're retiring. Um, they're moving into other sub, you know, parts of the company like CTO or CIO or something like that. And, and so there's a massive brain drain, incredibly large amount of people, um, egressing out of the industry at the top level. And so who's backfilling them is really, it's going to be a, something like a CISO chief information security officer. And that person probably, it came from somewhere else as well. They could probably came from being a CTO or a CIO or something less good. Um, maybe a sort of VP of engineering or director of it or something like that. And they're just sort of given, or maybe compliance or something. And they're just sort of given that job. Like, there you go. You're, you're it. We figured, we figured it out. You're the guy. Um, and then they're really incentivized to leave as quickly as possible. Like 18 months They they need to get out of there because they're going to get hacked because they don't really know what they're doing. Um, and if they stay any longer, people are going to blame them. So if they leave within the first 18 months or so, they can kind of blame the previous person, whoever is in there. <clears throat> sure. And then hiring these new people, <clears throat> they have this massive amount of headcount that they've got to backfill. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, so let's say it's five people, 10 people they need to backfill. Where are they going to get them? They don't really know anybody. You know, these, they're not from the security world. So they go to the local colleges and they find these people who have just graduated and know literally nothing. I mean, basically nothing about security. They've just know a couple of textbooks, which uh, by the way, we still reference hackers.org as if it's a existing website. Um, it could be, <laughs> we could, I guess we could always bring it back. Um, but the problem is there really is no incentive to find this like amazing candidate. And frankly, you can't do it anyway. They don't exist firstly. And then secondly, you, you probably work for a company on average that is not very interesting. So most security people are not going to work at this not very interesting company. They're going to want to work at a company that's doing penetration testing or, you know, some security consulting of some sort or whatever. Um, so it's getting more and more difficult to find people who are willing to take the job. And so you're getting more and more people at the very, very bottom of the security rung to enter these companies. I mean, are you, are you seeing this? Are you, are you feeling what I'm feeling? I think it's just growing. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. It's not because the incentives aren't right. Mm-hmm. Like nobody wants to, or I'm not saying nobody, but few people want to put in the effort to become an expert. And becoming an expert's not easy. I mean, and and maybe it's not even worth it for a lot of people. Sure, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's enormous. It's a lift. It's I mean, lift. I mean, if you're getting a two hundred thousand dollar a year contract and you're not working hard for it, what incentive do you have behind it? Mm-hmm. So there either have to be legal remedies that put pressure on companies to to secure things. Um, or economic pressure that makes them need to do it. I think what it ends up coming down to is we need to get security out of the hands of individual companies. <clears throat> they just got to take it away from them completely. Um, and put all of the security in a handful of vendors who are good at it, who can get the right resources in there, who really do know how to build things properly 
and then back propagate that all the knowledge and lessons learned back into these companies because they're not going to be able to do it themselves. That would be ideal. I think the biggest problem with that <clears throat> is people making decisions on who that is don't understand it. Like yeah. it, legislators don't know it. That's right. That's absolutely true. Um, heads of companies don't know it. They don't. And if you have a good enough salesperson coming in and they're selling you bullshit, you're buying bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I see happening the most. Yeah. You know, you and I have had this very interesting way of working together that I, I think is weirdly antiquated, but I love it. Um, which is that you and I have always used the Socratic method. So this is what it, this is what it ends up looking like. Um, I'll come up with a thesis usually almost, almost always coming from me. Uh, (laughs) and then I shit on it. Yeah. You'll shit on it. Um, (laughs) I mean, not always, sometimes you agree obviously, but um, when you don't agree, you'll shit on it and you'll just tell me I'm wrong. You don't bother sugarcoating it and you'll tell me why you think I'm wrong and I'll tell you why I think I'm right and we'll go back and forth and back and forth and and then we'll start researching it. We'll come up with or if it's not one of those types of things that needs to be researched, it's more explaining things back and forth or coming to a common understanding. Yeah. We'll sit there and we'll do it. But we do it potentially with raised voices and we get heated. It does happen. Come on. It does it definitely happens. Never raise my voice. <laughs> and we 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 definitely use strong words with one another because we have a strong point to make. I've um, been trying so hard not to. <laughs> this, this is, you can say whatever you want. Um, you can call me an idiot right now. It's fine. <laughs> There's probably a hundred F-bombs I would have dropped by oh, now. Oh, yeah, you can go ahead. Normal. Yeah. Go ahead. It doesn't matter. But, anyway. um, but the problem is if you try to talk to the average employee, the way you and I talk to one another. Now, I, I understand we were sort of the heads of this company, right? So talking to an employee yeah. is a different thing. We, than we talk- were equals. We were equals. But if yeah. you talk to somebody, you know, one or two levels down from you, the same way that executives talk, they're going to, they think they're going to get fired. But our intention was to, to never to fire somebody over bad ideas. We just yeah. wanted to improve their ideas. Like how do you get the best ideas? And the fastest way to get there is to come with an argument. So quite regularly, employees would come to us and they'd have this spiffy idea. And I'm like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Uh, And I beat them down. And I know you did the exact same thing. And I'd say, okay, here's what I need you to do. You need to go read the RFC uh, and understand why what you're saying is not possible and then come back. And then the idea was, and it it started working. It took about a year or so, but it started working. What ended up happening is the employees would go back. They'd read it. They know they're not going to get fired. I'm not actually upset. It's just like, come on, don't waste my time. Go actually do your research first. Then they come back very armed the next time. Like, okay, all right, I've read the thing. <laughs> I'm ready to have this conversation. And then, and it was still might be a terrible idea, but at least now you're starting on a much better footing. You're like, okay, you remember when you read that one thing about the blah, 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 and like, oh yeah. I say, so if you extrapolate and do this and that, and then you, they don't want work. And they're like, oh, I get it now. Like, that makes sense. That Now I see why you were pushing back so heavily. I don't think people are willing to do that anymore. I think it's more than that. Yeah. We were both technical leaders and most companies don't have those. 
So because we could give advice specific to our domains, mm-hmm. um, it was useful. But that doesn't happen in most companies. You think it's purely just that they're not technical enough to even argue? Do you really believe that? I think there's technical people out there. Or if- no, no, there's technical people out there. I'm saying leadership trying to tell someone who is technical has to have at least an understanding of the technology that they're trying to give to their employee. Gotcha. And we were in a unique position where we were domain experts. And so we could, we could hand that off. It just, it's not practical in a big company. Yeah. But I think it, I don't know. I see there's a other, so for instance, I just had a conversation with Jono about SEO. I know that he could do the exact same thing about SEO. It wouldn't be anything to do with security at all necessarily, just marketing, pure play, let's say. Mm-hmm. And he could do the exact same thing. Or you could do the same thing with uh, sales. Like there's a lot of right and wrong ways to do certain types of sales. You know, trying to sell in... Uh, in New York compared to Texas, completely different type of sales. You got to be much slower. You got to ask them about their kids and you know, it's a totally different type of sale. There's a right and way, wrong way to do things and it's provable. You can actually get the metrics on it, but I still don't see people really having these tough conversations with, with the positive intention. Like I'm not trying to beat anybody up when I'm having an argument with them. I'm trying to get them to come up with the right decision about whether this is true or not. And sometimes I'll fight them just to make sure that they've thought it through. Uh, there's this parable about uh, there's a, a gate across a road and uh, some guy shows up. He's like, I want to remove this gate. And the other wiser person says, um, what, well, why do you want to remove the gate? It's like, well, it's in the way. It's like, well, what's, what's it there for? And it's like, I have no idea. That's why I want to get rid of it. It's like, Mm-mm. I'm not going to let you get rid of it until you know what this gate's for. Once you know it's four, then go ahead and get rid of it. Um, you come back and you tell me why it should be gotten rid of once you know it's what it's there for. I think that's how I've always seen this whole thing. Like I'm willing to hear any crazy idea. doesn't matter how crazy it is. But I have to know you at least started with the right kind of information first. You're not starting from nothing. If, you're right, if your idea is synthesized from you just having a dream one day, I, I'm sorry. Like you're going to have to go do some work before we have this conversation. Sure. No. Okay. I'm, uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm all, all right. about that. We, we agreed. I, I, I'm not even arguing about that one. <laughs> it's the exact same way I think. So, yes. And one thing I would say is, of all of our former employees, yes, that I'm still in contact with, mm-hmm. they're all much better off. Oh, than, totally. Than they would have been. I mean, absolutely. We have some. They're rock stars now. Yeah. Ro- literally, like yeah, amazing. Freaking. They're running some of the world's infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real, literal, just top of the top of the game. Amazing. Yeah. And that would not have been possible if I had let them do what they were doing. If I had just let them go and do whatever they were doing, they would have just languished. Uh, they would have maybe gotten slightly better here and there, just pure accident. Yeah. But, you know, forcing them to think through what their ideas were and actually be good at thinking was critical to their growth, I think. It was. It- and they'll even say it, actually. I, I, they'll say it out loud. Yeah. I mean, and obviously they put it in the effort to yeah. be better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard work. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. th- I gave it to them. They, I'm telling them, go fucking work. <laughs> like, figure it out. <laughs> no. I, I'm super proud of a lot of our yeah. employees. Agreed. Ex-employees. Whatever. 
So this, uh, this one time I went to, um, Taiwan and, uh, I was heavily courted by the Taiwanese military and it, it was, it was a real, uh, wake up call for me in general. Um, I feel like going over there, I was a kid. And when I came back, I was finally an adult. You know, I like to say I finally put on my big boy pants. Um, because I finally realized what we were doing was not actually just fun and games for the first time. I mean, it seems crazy. Like, obviously I should have known this much, much, much earlier, but I think while maybe intellectually I knew that that was true inside, like emotionally, I hadn't figured that out. And then all of a sudden I was confronted with the Chinese military, the Taiwanese military, all, you know, playing their little spy games, um, which is a crazy story and I'll do it some other time. But the, the end result was I finally realized how dangerous travel was. I realized how much you and I personally were at risk for reals, not just theoretically. Um, I remember you being freaked out when you came back from it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, fortunately I hadn't brought anything with me that mattered. So everything went right in the dumpster kind of deal. But, um, that's the kind of trip. That's the kind of, um, when you realize that you're, you're actually being followed, um, you know, for reals and people are actually videotaping everything you're doing and everything is, you know, you're confronted by multiple spies and you know, this is, this is real and they could just bury you if they felt like it. Right. There's no reason you have to come back from these trips. So I think that that's, that was the sort of like, that's sort of the, the crevasse that opened for me that made me really realize uh, we need to be taking this much more seriously and how we interacted with customers much more seriously and how we treated our employees much more seriously how I treated you much more seriously. Everything had to be done with a more buttoned up than even it already was. I remember a number of times I came into your office, there was like something would happen. I'm like, okay, we got to armor up. And you're like, we're already doing everything. I'm like, I know there's going to be something we're not doing. So let's start doing whatever that is. And we'd think about it and we'd whiteboard every single thing we could think of that might be slightly better than what we're doing. And we'd implement two or three of them or whatever and get slightly better. And that, I think that's, that's the, the kind of thing that, that separated us from a lot of, I would say our, you know, our competitors. I mean that at the time. Yes. At the time. At the time. Yeah. There's obviously way more now. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculously more. So that leads me to my next question. So you were overseas at one point working for, um, a foreign military in a different foreign country training them, which is a little odd, but, that's where they want to do their training. Um, and you encountered your own version of the spy game. Would you kind of elucidate some of that? I mean, the the foreign government that we were in, not training, but the one we were in was spying on us. And it was obvious. I mean, like we were in a hotel and there were cameras and listening devices and whatnot. And it was just obvious they weren't even good at that but yeah we i was there for six months um i was teaching them how to uh, oddly find satellites um satellite receivers um so they could target some insurgents in their own country 
and a lot of just basic security training around that too, hacking cell towers and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you want me to go with this. But. Well, I think the the thing that stuck out in my mind was the cell phones were constantly under attack. Yeah. I mean, they, they were, but it goes two ways. It's kind of funny because I was using the country that we were hosted in infrastructure as a training tool on how to hack Hmm. because I was hacking (laughs) that. Wow. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) So yeah, I'm sure they didn't love that. Or maybe they, they can learn something from it. Maybe. Yeah. But anyway, we, um, we built a lot of devices while in country, um, which was difficult to get actual equipment into the country. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, to do that. So, I mean, I I use burner cell phones when I ever travel outside the United States. Well, I, I use burner cell phones all the time. Sure. Like, I think I have currently nine active cell phones, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. Yeah, you're like a drug dealer. <laughs> Better call somebody. <laughs> um. But that led you into building something that you um, had been talking about for a long time. Um, I don't know where you are with the project, but it might be worth talking about something to identify if you're being followed or that's, I think that's worth talking about. It was actually, that wasn't actually where it came from. Oh, really? Oh, okay. It was from that meeting in LA that we had with one of your clients Mm, that you were working for. Gotcha. And we had a long discussion about a fairly famous person that had security issues. And I had thoughts about the rest of it before then, but I was like, what What are all the different things that um, could identify a stalker or a combatant or whoever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which leads me down the bad path of, privacy and all the issues around that. But then I started putting it together. Of course. (laughs) I mean, if I don't do it, somebody else did it, right? Well, I I would never say that about anything that you work on, but yes, it's, it's possible someone else would do it. Anyway. So I basically any RF signal I'll take in and try and make a unique identifier about it. But then I started expanding that to um, image, like figuring out like someone walking this way, that way, who they are, Mm -hmm. grabbing license plates, um, taking images of drones. I kind of expand. Bluetooth and all kinds of different spectrums. Yeah, yeah. So garage door opener. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of cars now have Wi-Fi built into them. So you can do a lot of identifying information about just about freaking anything at this point because mm-hmm. everything's wired or wireless, whatever. So I started building out a sensor network with the original idea of just protecting someone, like knowing if <clears throat> someone bad is in your area or if you're being observed. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. 
which is certainly something that both drug dealers and celebrities have in common. It is, but there's more than that. Like, yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. Some people have evil stalker ex-girlfriends. Or some people want to be noticed and this might be a way to do it. I'm not going to go into the specifics of it, but Hmm. it does a lot of stuff. Um, And once I realized that if I've built a database that can take in all this data and then correlate it, um, there's a lot of interesting information you can get. I mean, I've, I've added stupid things like ornithology to it. (laughs) All right. Well, when I walk my dogs, I look at birds. (laughs) I'm like, what kind of bird is that? When are they here? And so, I've added, it's, it's a sensor network. Sure. So I'm just taking in information. Mm-hmm. And I've been looking at adding. So are birds real? Have we figured them out? Uh, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so I think people listening to this are going to say like, wow, this sounds super paranoid. And like, what the hell are you guys talking about? And I think let's walk back a little bit back to the sec theory days, just because I think this is a useful example. You one day came into my office and said you found a carnivore box on our network. Can you explain what happened there? So it's actually hilarious. We were working on a case with a customer and the FBI asked if they could put a box on our network. And we did. They were using a flash exploit um, to try and reveal the real, because the user was using a VPN to make the threats against our client. And we put that on our network isolated. And at the same time, I decided to start looking around at like, I'm obviously a paranoid person. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm isolating the FBI box. And I started looking at the network So at the same time, we're hosting a box to reveal the IP using a flash exploit. (laughs) There was also a carnivore box sitting right next to us. Which, which, what do you think was doing? What do you think that was for? It was for slackers. Yeah, but what for? What were they doing with it? I'm sure they were trying to grab all the information we had because you specifically said at one point that we're not encrypting anything. That's right. It's critical. It's actually very important to the way a lot of the site worked. Yeah. So we're not encrypting anything. And then the FBI put a box on the same, a span port on the same network. Mm -hmm. And so they were copying all the data. So everything that ever happened on slackers.org is definitely in the FBI's hands. Or could be anyway. Um, The, the reason I didn't ever want to encrypt things is because it actually broke certain exploits. Um, the way browsers used to work, um, not so much these days, uh, but you you couldn't guarantee that it wasn't going to pull from HTTP. And if we only support HTTPS, um, the encrypted version of it, uh, it would break a bunch of stuff. So uh, there, was a, there was a method of the madness. But you and I were always safe because we had an encrypted backdoor to get into these things. And so everything we ever sent was encrypted. It was really just everybody else. It was. Uh, it was everybody else. Yeah, that was a great part about it. Yeah. 
That's um, what led to the armored stack. That the yeah. separation. That's right. That's right. So partly your 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 trip overseas and some of the people you met while you were over there. Um, I remember you telling me like, hey, there's this thing you should probably do, which is go get your FOIA. Uh, go FOIA yourself uh, or FOIPA, um, which basically is asking a Freedom of Inf- Information Act. I would like to know everything the government knows about me or this government agency knows about me or whatever, right? You can ask about any question you want. So I said, okay, uh, that sounds interesting. I should probably know how that works. Uh, so I submitted two FOIAs, one to the CIA and one to the FBI based on this conversation with you because one of the one of your friends had actually submitted one and had actually gotten some data back, which I thought, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, that's, I'll do the same thing. So... I got the response from the CIA basically immediately. They said um, it was a it was a Glomar response, uh, which basically means that they are going to not admit or deny whether they have something or not or whatever. But it was written in a very particular way, where it was like the first paragraph was like, "Here's a Glomar." Second paragraph was, um, "We don't have to respond to you because of these very like six very specific national security reasons." um or whatever like very specific not like like global like this applies to everybody like specifically we don't have to do it this in your case right. and the last paragraph uh it's all just one sheet of paper uh was um you can appeal this but i'm the guy you, you're going to appeal it to and uh like basically just don't bother you know kind of one of those so okay i got the point the fbi on the other hand they called me they called me up on the phone like uh hi i'm agent so-and-so and this woman and uh, I'm like, oh, hi. And uh, she's like, uh, well, why are you trying to get your, your FOIA request today? And like, I explained exactly why I was I'm like, because I don't know how you guys are hacking me. I would like to know. And I know that you guys have in this case, this carnivore box. And I'd like to know what else I don't know. And uh, she, I'm, I'm sure she didn't love that answer, but <laughs> it was honest. <laughs> don't like lying to the feds. But anyway, um, so she, she, she took it. She's like, well, um, I'm not there's a danger here in that uh, if this gets out of my position, I'm not going to be able to guarantee its safety. Right. I'm like, are you, you mean the physical drive? I wasn't quite sure what you meant. Like, like the thing you put in the mail, the pieces of paper, or like, what are you talking about? She's like, are you, and I'm like, are you saying there's agents inside the post office, uh, post office and they're going to see it. And she, she kind of paused. She's like, well, I'm not, not saying that I'm (laughs) kind of just like trying to dissuade me. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to go for it. I think I'm going to do it anyway. And so uh, another couple of days passes maybe and uh, the local field office calls me like, hey, Robert, I just want to let you know this thing crossed my desk. Uh, It is now off my desk. I I completed it immediately. It is now off. By the way, why did you, why were you interested in this thing? I'm like, remember that carnivore box you guys put in our network? And of course he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. One of those. And I'm like, you're probably the guy who did it. What are you talking about? Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like what are you like what are you even talking about the most hilarious part was we knew there was carnivore box there because it had a web interface yeah it said carnivore on it yeah yeah like, <laughs> tr- try <laughs> at least a little bit and so uh i think something many years passed at this point years went by <clears throat> and uh i was messaging him about every year like what's going on with this thing? Like, are you guys ever going to respond to this thing? And just, it just years it kept going on and on. And I finally, 
um, got some response back. They're like, well, there's three different types of uh, cases. There's a, um, or four. I think there's small, medium, large, and extra large. And so think of small uh, is anything less than I think I think they said less than ten pages or something like that. Sure. And uh, and you can imagine like a, like the large would be. Um, Small, medium, large, and extra. Extra large would be like Hoffa or something, or it would be like JFK's assassination or one of those crazy huge cases, right? And like yours is a large. And I'm like, holy crap, like, well, <laughs> how big is this document? And then I was picturing like they might have every single, every single page of every single thing that had ever been submitted on Slackers in the, through that carnivore box, maybe. Who knows? So, Another year or so passes and I finally like they're like finally done. They actually send this thing to me and it, it was only uh, 560 something pages um, of content. Mm. So like, a you know, about two reams of paper uh, worth of content of which they redacted about 500 and something pages of it. So just right there gone. And so that only left 50 pages, I think 50 even pages of those 50 pages, every single word of every single answer of the boilerplate template that they put on every single case was all 100% redacted, including my things like my name. Like I'm not even allowed to know my own name. Um, and I know, I know what was going on there. I know that they just know that they don't want to answer. It was a giant F you. Yeah, it, it was, it really, really was. Uh, but it was an interesting F you. Uh, I actually learned things in the process. I, I just think that there's something that, there was something kind of weird and magical and fun about this whole entire time and environment where we were probably, we probably ran afoul of every dragnet spying operation that had ever been performed by the U S government and probably all of its allies. Um, and part of what took them years to respond is it probably took them that long to find somebody who didn't have an enormous amount of work on their, on their desk who was cleared for every single one of those programs enough to know whether I was capable of figuring out things I shouldn't be able to figure out from one or two art, you know, random pages in some FOIA response. Yeah. Seems reasonable. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of insane. I mean, it, it's a brokenness that should be fixed in the government, obviously, but, Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so at the tail end of um, us working together um, was during the uh, great bust of 2008, um, the uh, subprime subprime mortgage crisis uh, bust. Mm-hmm. I remember standing over the, um, looking over Wall Street, and I was in one of our customers' Uh, a big bank. I was in their office. This big, beautiful office, all glass. And uh, and I was sitting there with our customer, and he's like, "They're going out of business. They're going out of business. They might be okay. They're going out of business. They are probably going to go out of business." And I'm like, "What's going to happen with you?" <laughs> and they're like, "Well, I can tell you right now, we're not going to be buying any more services for a while. It'll it's like 100% austerity." And they went out of business. The problem is um, we had about six months of reserve cash, which is maybe a little bit more than maybe eight months or something, but we didn't have a year or more. And what we really needed was a year or more. Yep. Um, And so 
that was a big, that was very hard on me, extremely hard on me, uh, because we had worked so hard. I mean, both professionally and personally, there was a lot of risk. It was a very hard company to run for all kinds of reasons. I mean, literally everything was coming at us. <laughs> Aside from people yeah. literally shooting at us, we had everything coming at us. Um, certainly guys with guns, just no one actually shooting at us. We, we had to come out of that thing um, with enough cash to survive a, an enormous e- economic decline that we Yep. could not have easily seen from our position, um, at least not uh, how bad it would have been. So I ended up having to fire myself. Um, I went to, I literally went to a mirror. I, I told myself you were fired. Um, I, I needed to do it ceremoniously so I could like really get it out of my system. Yep. Um, and I went through a pretty bad depression about it, but you ended up running the company. You ended up taking over partly because you were super important for uh, running. We had Armored Stack running uh, this thing uh, called uh, other company called Falling Rock Networks, and we had customers at the time. And so you were far more critical to the day to day operations for the existing customers we had, which was recurring revenue, and they weren't going anywhere at least for a while. Right. Um, so we ended up um, not exactly shuttering the business, but certainly downsizing significantly. We laid off everybody except for. Our admin. And you. You. (laughs) So did you have any lessons learned out of that? Like if you were to tell other business owners, especially people starting in the security world, like I think I would tell them just don't start a consulting company because that is a hard business. hundred percent. It is super hard. Um, Yeah, building products that have recurring revenue is way better than trying to build something that is an ideology. Like fixing other people's problems, and as we've talked about earlier, that some people don't even want to fix, is not, it's a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. So... I don't think I would ever start a consulting company again. It just, it doesn't make sense financially. It doesn't make sense from also a stress point on yourself. I'm sure running any small business is hard um, outside our industry, but specifically like people that have active um, dislike of you, and at the same time, if you look at economic downturns, what's the first thing that's going to go? Things that don't have immediate financial value to the company. Mm-hmm. So security is especially hard at that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I I think one of the things I didn't like about running a consultancy is if you're not selling, then you don't have a pipeline. But if you're not working on a customer, you don't have revenue coming in. So which is it going to be? Are you going to build your pipeline or are you going to make money? Are you going to build your pipeline or are you going to make money? Because those things are not the same thing and you can't do both at the same time, or at least not well. Yeah. And so, and running a company and being as public as I was and you, people wanted us. They didn't want our employees. So it was, it was always sort of like a, we'll be there too, but really we need our employees to do most of the work. Otherwise we're going to be totally sunk with too many tasks. So it was always like, either sell or work and you can't do both and you can never really take any time off because you're always trying to get one of those done. 
And I think that sunk into my psyche. I think what ended up happening is I became a sales guy for the first time in my life. I'd never really been a sales guy. And I was treating everybody very transactionally. Like you can either buy my product or you can't. And if you can't, why am I spending time talking to you? And I really became kind of a shitty person. Like I, I look back on myself. I'm like, ugh, I really didn't like how I treated people back then. And I'm glad, mm. I'm glad I went through the downside of it just so I could kind of examine the kind of person I was being. And I really, really didn't like that. I don't think we ever really talked about this, but no, I, I feel like I spent a lot of time looking at people for what they could offer or provide me instead of looking at them as people, you know, with interests and desires and, you know, cool things going on. And I think one of the cool things about this show, it just shows exactly the opposite. I've totally swung the exact opposite direction. I'm super interested in people. I spend more time thinking about people than I do of anything related to work at all these days mm. um, in my spare cycles in my brain because I think people are extremely interesting and, and I had not given them credit for being as interesting and complex as I think they actually are. And um, <clears throat> after that, I mean, not immediately afterwards, certainly, but, you know, took a while for me to kind of figure it out. Um, a lot of reading and thinking and whatever I came out of it and I realized, um, I'm just going to decide to be nicer to everybody. doesn't matter what they look like. doesn't matter what they sound like. doesn't matter what economic background they have, whether they can buy my products, whether they're insecurity or not. I don't care. Just try to be nice to everybody. And I started getting friends all over the place. It's like an enormous amount of friends. I, compared to where I was before. And I was very well known before. Like I was not, yeah. I was not like a not well known person in our little industry. Not that anyone outside our industry would know who I am, but, but now I, the amount of friends I have just dwarfs that back then. And I credit that all to having a little hindsight and going, Hmm, I don't like the fact that I was treating people like that. Introspection's good. It is, but did you did you notice anything about me back then? Did you notice that I was like that or treated people that way? Or have I been basically the same in your mind the entire time? I'm curious because I don't... No, no, there was a big change. Okay. Um, because you were doing all the sales for sec theory, I wasn't, uh, and I'm not that person to this day sure. that does sales. Um, yeah, I could see your attitude change. I didn't look at it as a bad thing because, oh, you know, Robert's, they're making money. Yeah. Roberts is bringing in business. <laughs> otherwise, this company would not exist because yeah, yeah. I never could have sure. s- started it that way. Um, so, yeah. And I've, I've noticed a lot of changes in you through your other relationships. Sure. And how they've gone up and down and. Yeah. I look at all of those things as positive in the end. I mean, I, even the, even the parts of my life, they look back on, I'm like, I was shitty, but it's still a great learning experience and I would not trade it for anything. I'm glad I went through those times that I know that I was not a nice person to whomever I was talking to. Like I go to parties and I would intentionally stop talking to somebody just to talk to this person over here. Cause I heard them say some technical term and I'm like, there might be some chance that they're, you know, you know just really really not treating people with the kind of respect that they deserve. And, um, I completely stopped doing that. Hmm. I think it's important. I think, I think people 
can treat people that way. And if, if you find yourself listening and you're, you're doing that, I strongly encourage you to rethink things because even if, let's say I was in sales right now, I know I'd make a way more amount of sales than I would have uh, the way it was back then. Way more. Yeah. Just, just a nicer person. People like nice people. So, so I'm pretty much fucked on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it, James, but uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> no, I worry about you, honestly. I, and I want you to do extremely well. Um, but maybe consulting isn't right for you. So what? Okay. So that leads me to my next question. What's next for James? What are you going to do next? Now you're thinking about moving. Is there what? Not thinking about moving. Okay. Definitely. I've moving. almost got the entire house back. Okay. All right. Wow. So definitely getting out of there, mm-hmm. um, loading up the motorhome. Mm-hmm. So we, I have a big, stupid 36 foot motorhome. Yeah, it is stupid. It is so stupid at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I'm just going to turn it into a moving truck because yeah. Yeah. why not? Yeah, it's free. Mm-hmm. I already own it. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, um, I don't know. Honestly, I mean, there's some things in security I want to do. There's a whole lot of things I don't want to do. Like, I don't want everyone to manage hardware anymore. Hmm. I don't want to build infrastructure of any sort. I don't blame you. Uh, operational responsibility is it's a nightmare. Then you're really bound to a specific location, too. You really have to stay wherever you're at. You are. And I'm... So I love the idea of controlling everything because paranoid me Mm -hmm. needs to. Um, But at the same time, I'm like, what are the things that I need to control that are important? And I can build those out in a farm in the middle of nowhere. Like connectivity these days is good enough. Maybe Starlink or something. I can buy some shitty proxy service or whatever and still have my connectivity through it um but yeah i don't i don't know i'm trying to find something interesting to do Mm -hmm. i have two interesting projects one being the the uh, sensor arrays and another was a phone i built because i don't trust phones Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah no you don't (laughs) so i built my own phone um, so there's those, and I, they probably have value. Um, I would need other people to help out on those mm-hmm. or at least one of them. I can get the phone. I already did Pro- that. Product research is quite expensive. Even if you have a mostly working prototype, it just takes money. Yeah. Pricing and packaging, building SKUs, the whole thing, having, 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 built cell phones in the past for a client. It is, it is quite an endeavor. Um, very, yeah. very complicated and a lot of moving parts. And, and then you run afoul of, you know, Google's ecosystem and their, their contracts and all kinds of crazy stuff. So it's, it's really, really, really tricky. It is. So, I mean, I could build boats at this point. And it all right. So, how do people find you online, James, or, or do you even want to be found? Just gonna go in the, live in the woods somewhere, send carrier pigeons in. I mean, there's a reason my handle is ID, and it's been that way for a long time. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I can respect that. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, James. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I mean, I just came here to bullshit with you. And we did that. <laughs> <laughs>